internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've got another super mega awesome movie review madness. Madness, madness, madness. I feel like this is almost like a, a, a yearly occurrence. Every Thanksgiving, we've got, we just got a metric butt ton of uh, new movies to come out. And this weekend is no different, because not only do we have a bunch of new releases, but I'm actually going back and covering a bunch of other stuff leading up to those new releases, because we've got two major sequels coming out. We, uh, the sequel to Wreck-It Ralph, Ralph Breaks the Internet. Uh, so I'm reviewing both Wreck-It Ralph movies. I've got Creed 2, which means I'm going back and reviewing all of the Rocky movies. Then we've got uh, Summit and Lionsgate's new somewhat modernization of Robin Hood. Uh, we've got the... Uh, a bu- and then the rest are all mainly like awards bait sort of dramas. We've got Green Book about uh, Dr. Shirley and his driver for a 1961 tour, I want to say. It's around, that er- around that era. The very late Jim Crow pre-Civil um, Rights South tour. We've got the biopic of Gary Hart and his uh, very short-lived presidential campaign in 1988, The Front Runner. We and then we've got two with "boy" in the title. Oddly enough, we've got "Beautiful Boy," uh, starring Steve Carell, and that's based on a, memoir, a dual memoir of these two of this father and son, where the father is a writer and the son had had to overcome. Uh, various drug addictions, and it's their sort of joint by joint story of how the two of them have to deal with this issue, and then Boy Erased, which is the latest from Joel Edgerton as a as a writer director, based on the memoirs of Jared uh, Conley, I believe Gerard Conley, um, he, who was the um, gay son of a Baptist minister who had to undergo conversion therapy and he has since spoken out against it and has written several articles and then even a memoir about his time, you know, undergoing conversion therapy. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's going to get heavy towards the end, but uh, let's cut to the chase and get started with this week. This is what's called the dark net. Are you sure this is safe? Just whatever you do, do not look at his little brother. Oh, his little brother? <laughs> what are you doing here? <clears throat> the reason I came to your neck of the face. I mean, there's a face in your neck. I mean, woods. Neck of the woods. I mentioned in my 100th episode uh, that Wreck-It Ralph is one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's still, right now, currently in the top ten. And I still hold by it. I rewatched it uh, in the lead-up to Wreck-It Ralph 2. And it's still, I think it still holds up. I think it's a phenomenal sort of villain story. Like, you very rarely see a, an antagonist as the, as the main character. And in this case, it's the sort of... Uh, subversion of the fact that here we have the bad guy being the protagonist, but it's not. But he is, he is basically an actor playing the bad guy, and everyone is kind. And whenever you're, I mean, think of this as like the Margaret Hamilton situation, where she was so iconic playing this villain, and everyone thought she was that evil. And here, and so you've got Ralph, uh, played by John C. Riley, who is this Donkey Kong type character who is sick of being treated like he's a bad guy outside of his game just because he plays one within his game. 
And even by the characters within his game, they still treat him like the bad guy once the game is over. And he's, you know, he's sick of it, damn it. He wants, he wants some respect. He wants people to treat him with some respect for a change. And that's what leads him to go turbo uh, in the parlance of the movie, wherein he hops from one game to another in the hopes of earning some respect from his fellow uh, game mates. And in the course of doing so, he actually manages to put the entire his own, not only his own game in jeopardy, but a lot of the a lot of the, you know the rest of the arcade in jeopardy. And it's up to him in, or, in order to make things right. And in the mix of that, you've got uh, Joel not Joel McHale, um, Jack McBrayer uh, as the as the sort of Mario Jumpman to uh, Wreck-It Ralph's Donkey Kong Fix of Felix. And he's sort of, you know, he's basically Jack McBrayer. He's a can-do, happy-go-lucky uh, uh, protagonist with a southern drawl, y'all. And he's, he's a great character. I really like Felix because in, the, in find, searching, going after uh, Wreck-It Ralph, he ends up falling in love with uh, Jane Lynch's character, Sergeant Calhoun, who is the sort of main... Uh, Main, you know, main person in charge of the Call of Duty style game, Heroes Duty, and it, and he's like, oh, I love. You. He's he's like immediately in love with this woman, and he and the the two of them go after Ralph. Uh, after Ralph inadvertently brings one of the enemies from her game into the um, the very sugary, candy coated uh, kids racer Sugar Rush, and it. And it's there that Ralph meets his eventual best friend, Vanellope von Schweetz, played by Sarah Silverman. And Vanellope is set up as the sort of glitch character who's not technically supposed to be there until the, you know, until thing, you know, until the course of events reveal the truth behind what's going on in this Katie coated Heart of Darkness. I love that line so much. Some great lines in this, really good lines in this movie. I think my perfect moment in the entire movie is during the climax where it ties back to the opening scene of the movie, where Ralph is at uh, Bad Guys Anonymous, or Baddies Anonymous, I guess, or whatever the term... Basically, uh, a a sort of support group for antagonists, so that they don't feel so villainized. You know, that they realize, look, we are human beings. Just because we play bad people in games doesn't mean that we are bad people. And they have an affirmation, uh, like AA, basically, and it's, I'm bad. And that's good. I will never be good. And that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. And it's... Ralph never says it during the opening, during the affirmation in the meeting. He ends up... But he, but by the end of the movie, he ends up saying it as he's risking his life and about to, essentially about to commit uh, suicide in the, in the effort to save Vanellope's game uh, and, you know, save... And, and protect the arcade. So he's... So he kind of gives, you know, gives into the fact that, you know, in the end of all things, he is a bad guy. He is ultimately, he can't change the programming. He can't change who he is. He can only do with it what he, you know, what he thinks is right. And he's, you know, he's willing to give give in to what he does best. Wreck it. Wreck stuff. And... And yeah, I love I love that movie. I still love Rick and Ralph. I still think it's one of the better uh, latter day Disney movies. I think it, I don't know why more people aren't into it. I guess it's it, I mean I will say the twist is kind of predictable once you once they give um, the backstory to the, the the term Turbo going Turbo. Uh, 
And so, I mean, any and, you know, an adult who has seen any number of movies can pick, you know can pick out what's going on. But I still think it plays out very well, and I think it, the way they execute it is is great. So, when they announced the sequel, and they said it would be him going, Ralph going to the internet, and then the trailer started coming out, I was very cautiously optimistic because I know, I mean, it is very emoji movie. This is essentially Disney's the emoji movie. And unfortunately, that has all of the trappings of what didn't work about the Emoji Movie. Well, thankfully, the writers knew better than to give in to what didn't make made the Emoji Movie one of the worst animated movies to come out, and instead made it a very decent movie, if not you know, but nowhere near as good as the original. So this time around, they establish uh, that Vanellope is kind of getting tired of her. Of being in Sugar Rush, she's essentially she's done everything she can in Sugar Rush, and she wants to expand her her, her horizons. While Ralph is more complacent, he likes where he is. He has a best friend. He has good, you know, he has good rapport with the people around him. The Nicelanders treat him nice in uh, his own game, and he's and he's friends with uh, Felix where he wasn't before. And he's he likes where he is. He doesn't feel the need to do more than what he's got because what he's got is a good life. And unfortunately. Uh, Vanellope ends up breaking, you know, going against uh, the controller, the controller character, in, in while during a game of Sugar Rush, and ends up accidentally breaking her own controller. Uh, and then, then you know, the player ends up breaking the controller accidentally, and the and the and the and the only way to save the game is to get a new part, which is too expensive for the small, you know, independent arcade owner to afford. So he ends up unplugging Sugar Rush in order to send it back to its manufacturer since he can't use it anymore. And with the all of the residents of Sugar Rush homeless, uh, Ralph and Vanellope decide, well, you know, since, he, since um, the arcade owner plugged in Wi-Fi... For the first time, you know, for the first time, they decide, well, why can't we go to the internet and get the thing ourselves? Like, we can save, we can save all the Sugar Rush people and we can get her game back. And so they end up going to the internet. And it, you know, it is very much like the Emoji movie. I feel like they, they, this is one of those instances where Wreck-It Ralph was in production already and the Emoji movie is sort of almost rushed out. So I doubt that there is a lot of ripping off going on, but I mean... It's not like the first time we've seen the internet as portrayed by a digital city. So here we've got the internet as portrayed by a digital city where there's different districts, like the shopping, the market district, the uh, gaming district, the um, the social media district, etc., etc. And so Ralph and Vanellope are, are a bit overwhelmed, and then they end up, and, but they end up finding their way to eBay, in order, and they. <laughs> misinterpret what an auction how an auction works and end up having to pay twenty seven thousand dollars in order to get that new uh part for for them and unfortunately being that they're they're not technically users they have no and they have and they don't exist in the real world they can't have access to real world money and so they uh they end up hooking up with a spam sort of character he was a literal spam ad and a pop-up ad he and his whole spiel, uh, spiel shtick, um, his his whole uh, his whole thing is uh, this is played by Bill Hader, and his whole thing is uh, if you get objects within video games, you can make real world money. 
And so they end up needing money real quick because it's like within 24 hours you need to have purchased this um, this item or it goes or it doesn't get or it, you know you lose it. And so they end up in t- going into a sort of GTA Online style, really rough and tumble, uh, dirty, post-apocalyptic LA style racing game called Slaughter Race. And it's there that Vanellope, like, really feels at home. She digs this new game. And unfortunately, Ralph is more concerned about getting her back to her old life that he's not really paying attention to what it, that, the fact that she really is enjoying this new experience. And so they meet Gal Gadot's character, um, Gal Gadot? I know the T is pronounced, uh, but I, I think it's Gal Gadot. Um, but anyway, she plays the sort of main uh, NPC in that game's... Uh, uh, Shank, and <laughs> Disney character named Shank in a game called Slaughter Race. Never would have predicted these kind of things happening, but this is where we are. This is 2018, everybody. Disney's got a Disney's got a movie that features a game called Slaughter Race, where the main character is named after you know stabbing somebody in prison. <laughs> um, at any rate, yeah. Then, but in order, and, but they so they can't get the item from the game. But Shank tells them to visit Taraji P. Henson's character, who is the main algorithm for the for the fake YouTube um, for the fake YouTube site BuzzTube, and uh, yeah, called Yas. Like actually spelled that way, Y A A. I think multiple S's. It's very much the um, uh, sort of black cultural terminology. Yaps, uh, black slash gay. I think black and you know, like black queer. Community came up with it. I'm not. Uh, I, I can't speak to the origins, but it, you know, it's become very mainstream in the youth culture, and so they have a character named Yas. Ugh. It was that was that felt dated when the Powerpuff Girls uh, reboot used it. OMG, Yas. So when Disney has like an entire character named Yas, it feels very. Ugh. Icky. It feels like your cool youth pastor trying to be like, hey, what's up, fellow kids? <laughs> and thankfully, that's the worst aspect of uh, uh, Henson's character because she's this always on the, uh, always trendy, always, can always gotta be what's hip, what's new, what's going on. So, like, her outfit changes and she's kind of obnoxious and she's exploitive of Ralph and of, and of him going viral. But she's not a villain. She's not the antagonist. She is very much like, like, yeah, she's willing to exploit Ralph for his virality and his, his and him being able to go viral quickly. But she cares about Ralph. She's like, hey, I want you to succeed so that we both succeed. She's very much, you know, she cares about Ralph succeeding because that means they both succeed. And she cares about him getting what he wants because she wants him to be happy. So she's not a bad character, but she is very much an exploitive character. She 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 is more willing to exploit others for her own benefit, but she never does it maliciously. She's not a malicious character, and that's and so while while they're at BuzzTube, uh, Yas directs Vanellope to be a pop up ad over in the gaming district initially, but. Uh, Ralph feels like he doesn't want her to go back to Slaughter Race because he feels like that's a bad influence. Ralph is very much like the unhip dad trying to like, no, no, she's too young for that sort of game. She needs to go to somewhere safe. So they send her to the actual site, Oh My Disney, which is literally BuzzFeed for Disney fans. 
And that's where the main influx of the Disney princesses come in. And that's where the onslaught of Disney references are. You see Eeyore. You see the Pixar characters. You see there's a Marvel section. There's a Star Wars section. And you see Iron Man in the background. She's chased around by Stormtroopers. You see Grumpy. Grumpy the Dwarf uh, for, for a hot second. And then they bring in the princesses. And that's where... It's a cute scene. It doesn't overstay its welcome. But it's not the most... Like, it's not the best scene in the movie. I think it's the most fan... Fa- it's a very fan service kind of scene. I mean, they bring back pretty much all of the surviving Disney vo- Disney princess voice actresses. Uh, the only ones they re- they recast are, like, uh, Aurora, Cinderella, and Snow White. And the actresses they brought in are probably the same ones that they use for, like, the other... Um, media that the princesses show up in so it's not so it's very in-house like hey we're bringing you back in for a quick uh cameo as your princess and the princesses you know kind of they 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 learn about casual clothing and they get to hang out and and vanellope feels welcomed and it's where vanellope realizes that she needs to figure out what she wants out of life and that's where that's what leads us into a very disney princess parody song about her wanting to be in the game slaughter race <laughs> This is 2018, everybody. This is 2018 in the nutshell. It's not only do we have a game named Slaughter Race in a Disney movie, in a Disney movie with a main character named after a prison stabbing implement, but then they have a de- then they dedicate a whole princess uh, I want song to it. It's very it's very on the nose with its self parody. You know, it's very keen on the lampshading, but it's never. It's never obnoxious with it, you know? I mean, the referencing, self-referencing is a, is a bit obnoxious, but the actual parody stuff is well-written enough that you're like, you know, I'll give that to you. Y- y- Disney, I, I, yep, yep, I'll give you that one. And then eventually what it culminates to is Ralph, get, Ralph, gets, Ralph succeeds the main reason they came to the internet, but then he finds out that Vanellope doesn't want to go back, and it's about dealing with their own emotions while also leading into a giant monster fight. <laughs> uh, Ralph literally breaks the internet, but I won't reveal exactly how. Suffice to say that he visits the dark web. He, you know, Bill Hader takes him down to the dark web where he essentially meets Kuato from, uh, from Total Recall. Uh, and it's about him, and but in, in inadvertently trying to keep his best, not lose his best friend, and... To, to keep the main reason they came to the internet going and get back to where they came from, he inadvertently, you know, ruins his friendship and he has to overcome the fact that he is, you know, he has, he has underlying psychological damage from all those years of abuse uh, by the other game, by the other members of the arcade that he's never really dealt with. And he kind of, he kind of lays that all on Vanellope, essentially, over the course of this movie. And so it's a, it's a lot about, Ralph overcoming his own psychological trauma in order to keep maintain his friend his real friendship without it being a toxic friendship, which is actually very mature for a Disney movie when you think about it. <laughs> this is about overcoming psychological trauma in order to maintain non toxic relationships. You know, like this is 2018, everybody. Disney movie that features a game called Slaughter Race with a, with a main character named after a prison stabbing implement with a, features its own Disney princess parody song and the uh, and the main th- thrust of the movie the main theme going on is you need to overcome your psychological trauma in order to maintain healthy relationships. This is 2018 in a nutshell. Like this is the madness that this year entails. Um, 
But everything manages to work itself out, and I will say it's it's not as good as the first movie. It is very you know once the internet by nature of trying to capture encapsulate the internet, they do better than the Emoji movie does, and essentially it's because they have better written characters than the Emoji movie did. But at the same time, the internet is so fast paced and. You know, very instantaneous. Like, things that are... Like, Yas, I feel like, is almost... Since since going mainstream, has almost kind of become passe, depending on who you talk to. Like, I don't... I feel like once the Powerpuff Girls made reference to it, I feel like that was already kind of a dying term. And so, while the the mainstays are there, the references to the dark web, uh, the social media aspect, they do they do cover like the the dark you know the fact that there are people who will not like you on the internet, and that and they even make a reference to the, the old internet adage, "Don't never read the comments." And that's that's kind of where you see that's the main re- point where you see Yas is not a malicious character because when she sees Ralph is broken hearted at seeing negative the negativity on the internet, she's like, this is why we say never read the comments kid. You know, this is a harsh, re- a harsh reality. The internet can be do amazing things, but it also brings out some of the worst in people. This is once again, this is a very well written movie, but I feel like, the problem is by nat- by the very nature of trying to tackle a, a, such a all encompassing, um, you know, monstrosity like the internet, you ultimately, you know, you ultimately ultimately can't really tell a, a a great story when you're trying to encapsulate all the aspects of the internet. And unfortunately, yeah, I mean, it is obnoxious and self-referential. In some ways, they can do the lampshading well, but in other ways, it's kind of it, it is, does feel like, hey, buy our merch, buy our merch, come buy our stuff, new Disney princess merch, buy the new outfits, buy, 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 and of course, all the corporate tie-ins, Amazon, uh, Wikipedia, I think, was on there. You had Google was the biggest building in the entire internet, all the social media outlets. Yet, meanwhile, they couldn't afford you. They made up a fake YouTube, and and then they of course plugged in their own. BuzzFeed style blog site. So yeah, it's it's a very hit and miss movie. The the parts that are that make that kind of align it with the emoji movie are the worst. But what saves it from being that bad is great writing, great theming, great performances too. Like you like you, you can tell Sarah Silverman is not a great singer. Although I think Gal Gadot may be a decent singer, depending on if they if they got her, if they dubbed her singing voice or if they made her sing or if they got her to sing. I never go looked into if that was her singing voice or not. But yeah, Shank sings in the princess song in this movie. But yeah, ultimately, and of course, there's a whole there's one of my favorite aspects of the first movie was the relationship between Fix It Felix and Calhoun, and they they hint that they're still together. And that they help to take care of the Sugar Rush kids while their game is unplugged. But then that's whole... All, everything about that was dropped in order to focus solely on the internet aspect of the movie. And I feel like that's the misstep. Like, you could have taken an extra 10, maybe 20 minutes uh, interspersed throughout the course of events and cut back to what's going on at the arcade, updating everybody on what's going... Because we never know... Like, they say uh, Fix the Felix will cover for Ralph in the arcade while he's on the internet, but then they never cut back to what's really going on at the arcade. And it just only comes back in at the end. So, I feel like that was another misstep. That's why the first the first movie was tight. 
it knew exactly what it was want, wanted to do, and it went and it went for it. This one's more meandering. It's like, oh hey, look at that. Oh hey, look at that. Oh hey, look at that. Oh, yeah, isn't this cool? And so it's very distracted. I feel like, but ultimately ends in a good place. So Wreck It Ralph to Ralph Breaks the Internet or Ralph Breaks the Internet. Wreck It Ralph two, uh, as the titling goes. It's not bad. It's not a bad movie. It's it's sadly a lesser Disney movie, though. I feel like I feel like unfortunately it didn't go. Like I feel like we don't need any more Wreck It Ralph movies at, after this. I feel like we're good now. I feel I feel like it's a good place to end it. I don't want to try. Like, what are they going to do after? They already went to the internet. What's more? Unless there's a massive new um, tech jump in technology in terms of video gaming, there is no real reason. For us to continue the Wreck-It Ralph universe, you know? I feel like leaving it here... I feel like I would have preferred it if they kept it at one movie. But I'm not angry that they made a second one. It's just not... I just... The first one's has yet to be topped. And I feel like with that drop in quality between the first and the second movie... I don't trust a third one will be much better. But, you know, I've been proven wrong before. Were you? You can't be. Because we're a team. Now you know what you're fighting for. Round after round, you learn more about yourself. And when I stepped in that ring, it wasn't all about me. This took up the majority of my week. Well, the previous week was all catching up on Harry Potter. Um, this week is all catching up on Rocky, because I'd only really seen the first four Rocky movies, I'd never seen Fiverr, Balboa, and I never saw Creed, because I didn't start reviewing movies regularly again until, uh, like, the, the entire year of 2015, I had take, essentially taken off, in terms of con- consistently reviewing movies, so I, I missed the initial Creed, although I heard really good things about it, and I'll discuss my thoughts on it when we get to it, but with the, with the sequel coming out... I went back and revisited all of the previous Rocky installments. And <laughs> I commented on uh, my co-host on Living in the Stacks, Diana, her husband and her uh, over on their podcast, Macintosh and Maude, haven't seen. Uh, they are covering all of the Rocky movies as well. And so <laughs> I commented that, hey, that's my week too, man. You know, solidarity. <laughs> but, um, yeah, uh, I... In going back and revisiting the Rocky movies, it's a solid franchise, ultimately. And uh, I feel like there's only a couple rough patches, uh, mainly ju- mainly towards the middle. Um, but going back and revisiting it, uh, the original Rocky is iconic. You can see all of... You can see how impactful it was on not only sports movies, but in drama and in pop culture as well. So much of the initial Rocky movie has be- become ingrained in the zeitgeist of, of American culture that... It's hard to ignore, and yeah, I mean, my biggest issue with it is that Sylvester Stallone writes it very simplistic, and the dialogue is very uh, awkward and stilted, and I feel like that's by design, so I can't, I don't knock it, but it's why I never really feel the need to go back and rewatch Rocky, because 
you know, it's why <laughs> I have I have enough problem talk talk you know not trying not to talk like Rocky in the first place. I don't need to see that put up on screen and made made even worse. Like, uh, uh, I don't need to watch this. I yeah, you know, I feel like having regular day conversations with people is much more dynamic than watching Rocky trying to articulate how words work. That like and once again, that's kind of the point is that he's kind of a dullard and. You know he's 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 a brute. He's a bot. You know he's he's a he's a fighter, and it's he's not he's not so. And I mean they address that in the sequel, but the initial Rocky movie, the dialogue is kind of what keeps me um, from going back to it. Uh, but ultimately, it's a it's a solid movie, and you can see why it's so iconic. Because it's, and, and the the end goal is not even succeeding. It's not even winning the 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 belt. It's going the distance. It's literally just surviving 15 rounds in the ring with the champ- heavyweight champion of the world and never taking a knockout. Not taking the knockout. Just always, it doesn't matter if he wins, it matters that he made it. And that's what made him famous, that he never gave up. And then the sequel expounded on that, where Rocky tries to find a day job that isn't... Uh, that it that isn't him kind of beating things up for money, and he can't do it. He is a fighter by trade. He needs to fight. It's what he's great at. And so when Apollo is feeling sort of jilted, like everyone thinks Rocky technically won that fight, even though, well, even though Apollo technically won, everyone uh, everyone recognizes that Rocky was the real winner in that outcome. Because even though it was just an exhibition match, it was. It, you know, Apollo, even though he won the judges' vote, Rocky won the crowd vote, and Apollo gets like hate mail and it's like you're not you're a sucker. How do you feel? You know, how do you feel losing to to a guy like Rocky? You're not a real champ anymore. You don't deserve that belt. And he's like, yeah, I need to prove myself. I need to knock out Rocky this time. This is going to be a real fight, and that I feel like it improves on a lot of stuff from the original movie. And it's actually, a really it's an excellent example of how to go from how to continue the momentum of a sequel without it kind of being repetitive. You know, like even though yeah, we are having a rematch between Apollo and Rocky, it's different now. The things have progressed. This is how you do a sequel, and I reckon, and I think that's I feel like that's a sort of study in screenwriting that people need to take. Like here's how you progress the story without it being you know, to, without it kind of falling into the, a lot of the trappings of a se- that a sequel has. And then, of course, we get to my my favorite of the original tr- series, Rocky III. Because I feel like the first two Rockies are, 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 are serious drama, sports dramas, essentially. This is where we get into popcorn blockbuster-style affair, uh, uh, which is... We get our first real supervillain, essentially. Rocky has to face a an actual like antagonist, whereas Apollo was a, was a rival, and he considered, and they were kind of you know equals in that sense. They were you know they were against each other, but they were never there was never a- antagonistic the way that it is after this point. Because Clubber Lang comes in, he's he is smart mouth. He is he is he is belligerent. He is angry. He is thre- you know he is condescending, and Mister T plays it. Perfectly, he's a great antagonist for this for this movie, and unfortunately, Rocky has essentially gone soft because Mickey didn't want to risk him getting any more damage while he while he w- maintains the title. And when Clubber Lang just knocks him straight out, he ha- Rocky has to realize that you know being he, now that he's a famous celebrity, now that he's you know you know living high on the hog, he doesn't have that edge that Clubber had. 
and that's what led him. That's what brought Apollo in, which ultimately leads into Creed. Essentially, I'll I'll talk about that in a bit. But Apollo comes in, has Rocky come out to L.A. and train with him at the Delphi uh, gym, and it's it gets really homoerotic out of nowhere. <laughs> um, and Rocky and Apollo train so that they can have the rematch against Clubber Lang, and and Rocky can reclaim his title back. But yeah, he needs to find that Eye of the Tiger, and I think that's what helps too is the iconic Eye of the Tiger song, which is it's probably the best in the entire series if I'm if I'm being honest. And I, I, if of all the Rocky movies, Rocky Three was the one in the, of the original series that I could rewatch over and over again. It's one that I could turn on and just enjoy myself the entire time. Then we get to the completely drenched in its eighties-ness Rocky Four. Now, a lot of fans who are older than me, Gen Xers especially, are probably fans of Rocky Four. Just nostalgic, just out of nostalgic purposes. Like this is something they always grew up with. This is something that was iconic to their youth. This is something that's part of their childhood. But as someone who grew up after the movie was released and who never saw it growing up, this was not my childhood. And looking at it objectively, it is actually a real drop in quality. It, it, number one, it's like a third to half montages throughout the movie most of the movie is just montages even more so than the first like the first three movies featured montages to cut to cut you know to show the passage of time they're gonna need a montage but the fourth movie is just like montage then montage and then break montage and then we have another montage and it's like just tell the damn movie like do we need this many montages but, and then of course you have the most iconic, like, Clubber Lang is the first great villain that Rocky faces. Ivan Drago is the most iconic, the, there's a reason they brought Drago back for Creed 2. Because he is the most iconic Rocky villain in the entire franchise. And Dolph Lundgren is part of the reason for that. He He's able to play that menacing, like, almost stoic, just powerhouse. He doesn't need to talk, he's got, he's got the power to back him up. Speaks awfully and carry a big fist. And, you know, it ult- at least, you know, Rocky is there to, for Apollo. Apollo puts on a big show. He thinks it's just an exhibition match. And then he dies in the ring. And that's why uh, Rocky decides to, to face Drago himself. Because he wants to put Drago out for what he did to Apollo. For killing Apollo for no reason. There was no reason for him to kill Apollo. He was just doing it to, to be villain. Because he's a villain. Because he's a monster. That needs to be slain. And Rocky's the guy to do it. And it's all Cold War grandstanding, pro-America, very Reagan, very Reagan era idea, ideolo- ideology going on. Like, we're so great in our freedom. We've got to face the Ruskies because they're cheating bastards. And we're the, re- you know, yeah, they can put us down, but we'll never stop fighting. It's very, like... The idea that Rocky brings down, the, essentially, the, he ends the Cold War by by punching a guy. <laughs> and it's it's so it's so up its own ass with how eighties it is. From the music to like, there's like a random Polly gets a robot who thinks of him as his girl as her as his girlfriend. He gets programmed to have a girl's voice and treats treats him like a girlfriend or something like that. It's it's so weird. What the hell even is Rocky for? But I think that's the thing. It's a kid's movie. 
So it's written and executed like it is a kid's movie, except with all the violence and the blood and all that. But stylistically, thematically, it is very much like a kid's movie. And I think that's why so many kids of the 80s grew up loving it. Because it speaks to a kid's mindset of things. And I think that's kind of why I can't get into it as an adult, because that's not how my brain works anymore. I can't get into that. Uh, but you know what? As cliche-ridden and and campy as Rocky IV is, at least it's not Rocky V. Rocky V is the de facto worst entry in the franchise. I think any Rocky fan will tell you that. And the sad thing is, it didn't need to be. Rocky V has a great premise. The idea that Rocky has Rocky um, is mismanaged, his money is mismanaged, and he ends up going bankrupt, and he has to return to Philadelphia, broke, and returning to what you know, trying to find out find out what he has to do after taking so much damage after years of being a, the heavyweight champion of the world. And in, what it does is it has him become the new Mickey for the character Tommy Gunn, and. These are great ideas. The idea that there's this Don King guy type character who immediately when Rocky returns from Russia is trying to to have him fight uh, another contender for the heavyweight championship of the world. And Rocky's just not interested. And he knows the guy is just trying to exploit him. And when they return to Philadelphia... Rocky gets so enveloped in training his his successor Tommy Gunn that he actually manages to to lose his relationship with his son. His son get his son has to ta- begin to take care of himself, and he becomes belligerent and and uh, distant from Rocky. And Rocky has to realize that, especially after Tommy betrays him and goes after the this Don King stand-in that. That he was that he was never going to take the place of Rocky's son, and Rocky and Rocky realizes that his son is what comes first, and that he needs to remember that. And then by the end, Tommy Gunn becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. But everyone's like, "That yeah, that guy that actually had the belt, he didn't win. He didn't fight Rocky, so you didn't beat the guy who fought Rocky for the championship. You're not a real champion. You're cheap. You're cheapo. You can't beat a real champion like Rocky." And so it ends in a street brawl. And yeah, the dialogue is some of the worst. We went from '80s jock rock to early '90s hip hop, and it's very jarring to make that shift. I think. The themes are there. The writing, the the storytelling is there. Rocky loses everything, and in the hopes of never returning to the ring, he decides to train a protege. The stuff is there. The problem is the dialogue is, isn't working. The pacing isn't the best. The performances are kind of weak. And then by the the, the whole th- part of it ending in a street brawl feels feels kind of you know feels very unRocky. Like it should always end in the boxing ring, and. Uh, thankfully, they 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 make up for this, and yeah, like the idea that his protege betrays him—that's that all. These are all good concepts. They just never work in execution. So I think that's the. I think a better screenwriter could take Rocky Five and make it a better movie, but what we got was a, was more of a hot mess. Uh, after that, we took a we took a bit a, uh, about a decade break from Rocky. Sylvester Stallone tried to do other things. And then he eventually wanted to return to Rocky to kind of continue the story. And here, um, 
<laughs> the main character that he has to fight is, and the new current heavyweight champion of the world is Mason Dixon. Mason the Line Dixon. Oh boy, that's a name. All right. Thankfully, they didn't make him a white guy. They made him a black guy. I don't actually. I don't know if that's a thankfully statement. I don't know if anything could have saved this character. And any, I mean, the character's fine. It's the name. I feel like you needed a better name than Mason Dixon. Uh, God. Anyway, uh, we established that Adrian has died in the in between Rocky Five and and this movie, and him and his son have kind of lost have kind of lost contact with each other and him and Polly are, are kind of like two old guys just trying to hang in there and you know age is finally catching up to Rocky and after an ESPN fake computer generated fight between Mason Dixon and Rocky Balboa everyone they see Rocky win and everyone's kind of all these pundits are talking like who would really win uh Rocky or Rocky Balboa in his prime or the current heavyweight champion Mason Dixon and it's all gets everybody talking everyone's kind of trash talking each other um and then Mason Dixon issues the challenge to Rocky to face him in the ring and Rocky decides you know what why why the hell not let's do an exhibition match to Put, put this all to rest. And there's some nice... I feel like it's interesting that it took until the sixth movie to really... Like, everyone in Philly, for the most part, throughout the series, is really charming and sweet-natured. It's not until the sixth movie that we see the real trash of Philly show up. Like, we see the kind of people that throw the batteries at Santa kind of Philly. Kind of Philadelphians. And nothing against people from like Philadelphia is not a bad city. The people in it aren't bad. There's just a notorious aspect to certain people within Philly, namely a lot of sports fans. And this is the first movie, despite the fact centering on being within Philadelphia, that actually tackles that there that these people exist. You know, <laughs> portraying these kind of trashy Philadelphians, in, you know, in the movie because everything before that, like there were people who were blue collar that Rock that Rocky worked with. But they were never trash. They were never like awful people. They were just like, they just, you know, talked with slang. They were kind of, you know, they would talk smack to each other. They, I mean, there were some trashy Philly kids that beat up on Rocky Jr. in school. But there was never like that Philly trash that is so, that, that so many people recognize. Uh, especially like really, really outrageous Philly sports fans. Um, those don't really show up until the sixth movie, oddly enough. <laughs> And probably just because you couldn't avoid it anymore by that point. Like, look, we know this stereotype exists. Let's throw at least one type of character into this. And it's like a trashy Philly bar girl who who talks smack to Rocky. Hey, how about you buy me a drink? What, you think you're too good for me? What? Well, I'm hot. I'm hot stuff. You don't know what you're talking about, man. Screw you, old old fart. You know, not, not to, you know, I'm censoring myself a bit. But you get the idea, and then like the trashy dude hanging with the hanging with that girl tries to pick a fight with Rocky, and Rock just shuts him down, like just pinning him against the wall, shuts this dirt bag down, and yeah, it's it, it, we, it's not a I kind of like that. I kind of like that it acknowledges that hey, you know these people exist in Philly, right? A lot of towns will have that kind of person, but there's a there's a sort of je ne sais quoi about that kind of person from Philly and I'm glad that they it took you know it took they, they eventually it took them a while but they eventually acknowledged it uh but it never really comes back in Creed like mainly because they focus on other aspects of Philadelphia and whatnot 
Uh, they end. So yeah, here we actually have a character that was mentioned in the first movie, Spider Rico. He becomes sort of um, a coworker uh, by by the fact, very nature that he doesn't. He just doesn't leave Rocky alone. He just kind of like he, you know, he's like, hey, look, we used to spar back in the day. You know, can you get? You know, can I bum around you? And so here's this character that was basically a throwaway name, and now he's a, a, a supporting character in this movie. It's a nice touch. Um, and then it ends with a very modern day style. But like all, that's the thing about the Rocky series. Every fight is filmed like boxing was during the time. I think the only one that didn't do that was Rocky Five, and I think that's why it failed. Three and four kind of uh, went for a more cinematic approach to filming the boxing. But Rocky, I think what works the most is Rocky's one, two, and especially Rocky Balboa know how to film boxing to make it look like you're watching a boxing match on television. Like you're watching the pay-per-view event. And that's what really sells it as sort of this authentic, like the people making these movies, they love boxing. And we see that on the screen. That's why, that's why the series works so well. And it, they eventually, Rocky comes out on top. Uh, and Mason Dixon gets to prove he's not a chump, which, and and it all works out for the best. It's a nice. It was a nice end note for the Rocky franchise, until 2015 rolls. Probably 2012, 2013 rolls around, and MGM went, is coming out of bankruptcy, and they want to reboot the Rocky franchise. How do we do that? Well, we could just hit the reset button, start over. That would be kind of stupid, or we could make it a legacy franchise instead of it being about Rocky. What are we making about, let's say, his rival slash best friend, let's say he had an illegitimate son. And that son tried to follow in his father's footsteps, become the new become a new heavyweight boxing champion. Why don't we follow that guy? And that's what brings us to the newest leg of the franchise, Creed. And Creed is, is like a breath of fresh air for the Rocky franchise. It's probably some of the best written the Rocky movies have been. You've, Ryan Coogler is, this is where he really cut his teeth as a, like he, he, he proved himself with Fruitville, movies like Fruitville Station. He cut his teeth in big budget Hollywood movie making with this movie. We wouldn't have Black Panther if not for his, his execution of rebooting the Rocky franchise. Coogler really proved himself capable of handling so much. And, you know, he made it from being about this underdog fighter from Philly into being a sort of uh, story of black legacy. Like, here you have the bastard son of a, of a heavyweight champion of the world trying to follow in his father's footsteps, kind of by, like, by the very nature of the fact that he, because he never had this, he, like, he didn't get the proper upbringing, um until halfway through his childhood. And by that point, he was always kind of instilled in him that he was a fighter by nature. He all, he wants to pick fights. He wants to fight for himself. He wants to prove himself. And he does prove, like, he has 15, he has a 15-0 record in, a, in, like, underground Mexican fighting. And he wants to prove himself in American boxing. And he tries to do it through his dad's old gym, uh, run by his uh, dad's, the son of his dad's coach, uh, Lil Duke. Uh, I forget, I don't know if it was Little Duke in the first movie and the first original series, or if it was just Duke. But yeah, Little Duke is the son of the of Apollo's old trainer. 
And he says, nah, man, I, I can't do that. Like, I, I know who you are, but I'm not going to do that to you. Like, I saw what happened to your father. I'm not going to do that to him. I'm not going to see that happen to an, uh, his son. And he, eventually, uh, Adonis Creed, uh, Michael B. Jordan, decides, well, why don't I, why don't I go find uh, Dad's old buddy, uh, that Rocky Balboa guy. And so he heads to, over to Philly from L.A., in order to f- seek out Rocky, in order to train him, like like he helped with his dad, and like him and his dad were like really good friends, and they were sparring partners essentially, but to a point like they were best friends by the end of his dad's life, and he wants to see if, see if his, this friend, this unk, is this uncle, this uh, uncle, if you will, uh, is gonna will help him like he helped his dad, and so. Uh, there's some interesting time ends to the rest of the franchise. Like, um, they acknowledge, like, the end of Rocky Three ends with that iconic shot of, of, of Apollo and, uh, Rocky punching each other in that fight, in that sort of underground fight to showcase, like, who would win between them. No lights, no cameras, no, nothing, no flash, no flare, just the two, two men going all out. And they acknowledge who wins that fight. I won't reveal who, because um, I think it's a nice touch when Rocky reveals who won. But they also, like, in Rocky Balboa, they acknowledge that the Rocky statue was finally taken down. And here, it's back up and it's a tourist attraction. Because I think by that point, the actual city of Philadelphia put up a Rocky statue. <laughs> um, and uh, so while this is going on, uh, Rocky is, uh, concedes to help out Adonis to at least not if nothing not to put get him ready to fight, but help him be a better boxer. And while while that's going on, Michael B. Jordan uh, Adonis meets uh, Bianca, uh, up and coming musician who's suffering from progenitive uh, hearing loss, and he he immediately falls in love, and he he tries to you know, he tries to gain her attention and gain her favor and start dating, and they do start dating, and this is, here we get, I think one of the first instances of uh, a high-profile role for Tessa Thompson, who is one of the best actresses working today, if you ask me, and two of them start dating each other, and and Adonis is starting to prove himself, and he, I think he even wins his first sort of sanctioned American fight, and... And so you have, and these are also Kugler has able to make. It kind of goes for the more cinematic approach to the boxing scenes, but in a, in a way that still encapsulates how boxing is shot for television and for audiences. And so here we finally get the part of Rocky Five that that would that worked, but it's done by a much better filmmaker, much somebody with a better handling of storytelling and whatnot. And that's Rocky becomes the new Mickey. And Rocky is willing to help help train uh, Apollo's son in order to you know help him succeed because he you know not even out of a sense of obligation but like this guy was my friend and if the kid wants me to help him train well, that's fine but we're not going to get too into the ring and then eventually uh, it is revealed that Apollo you know that Adonis who goes by Donnie Johnson after his mother's his mother's maiden, mother's name. Uh, is revealed to be uh, Adonis Creed, and that's when the big stuff comes. In. That's when everyone's like, "Hey, now, now that you're now we know you're uh, Apollo's son. We need you know you. Why don't we have a real fight?" And it's and it's an, it's another like shot of the tight, and it's a shot of the title. And Rocky's like, "Look, man, I don't know if you're ready for this, 
but I'll help, you know, I'll do what I can to help you. And that's when um, we end up, and that's when it turns into essentially a mix of Rocky V and Rocky, where it's about about Adonis proving himself to be to be a great fighter and not just a carbon copy wannabe of his dad. And it's him proving himself as a fighter and as his own man to really face uh to really, you know, face up to the challenges and be who he wants to be. And it's it one it was probably the best Rocky movie after, you know, outside of the original series. It, it you know, Within the series, I think it's a massive leap forward. It's a, I think the the writing quality has leaped astronomically, and the and, you know the performances are all better. It's a, it's a, you see the, in, like Rocky was never a bad franchise, but here where it's like, oh oh now we've just gone up a level. Now we've now we've leveled up, and now we're on a whole new level, uh, and that's what leads us to this weekend's release and my personal pick of the week, Creed Two. This is going to end up in my top top of the year list, folks. I have a, I would I it would take a lot of good stuff to come out next month for this to be taken out of the top seven. I'm just going to lay that out now because this is the best Rocky movie, period. And unfortunately, the only way it works as a Rocky movie is if you know the backstory of the other Rocky movies because this is essentially a sequel to Rocky Four. We see what's happening to the Dragos. After losing to Rocky, Ivan kind of fell out of favor with the Russian government. And he has resorted to kind of being an abusive uh, trainer slash father to his son, Victor Drago. Who is played by a newcomer who uh, named Florian Montianu. And this is like his first major role. And dude is like... Dude is... As as iconic looking as um, not as iconic because I mean Ivan uh, Dolph Lundgren as Ivan was so like picturesque. I, this this guy is not like that, but he kind of reminds me of like a Roman Reigns or a um, um, Jason Momoa type. He has that look about him, and I feel like Montiano could be a perfect Craven the Hunter. The dude belongs in superhero movies. He's got the build. To be a, a, either a good guy or a bad guy, whoever. If you want a big muscle, muscly figure to beat people up, this dude is, put this dude in superhero movies. He deserves it. And we follow the events of Creed, of Creed, where Adonis is now the heavyweight champion of the world. And then word gets out that Ivan Drago's son is eyeing, eyeing him for, for the for the championship belt to prove that, you know, you know, somebody outside of the U.S. can win it and hold it. And, the fight scenes are even better now. Uh, we actually see we we never really got to see Tessa Thompson as performing as Bianca. Here we actually see some of her concert work, and it's solid. I, Mike Will made it. Uh, the producer is behind the uh, music production for this movie, and it's that's some good stuff. And so what we what what follows is the perfect lead, the perfect jump off from Rocky Four, whereas Rocky Four was campy. And completely up its own ass with its Reagan era sort of grandstanding. Here the Dragos are fully realized three-dimensional characters. We see what what drives Ivan, what drives Victor. We see the the torment and the fail the, that failure has led them that that has pushed them to, and we see just how driven they are to get revenge essentially. But is that revenge worth it? 
and and it really is and Lundgren returns and is even better as Drago now that he is the older sort of bitter Drago and uh, you, we also there's also like a, a subplot uh, where uh, Bianca and Adonis have a, have a kid, but there's worry about whether or not the kid will have uh, hearing will be will be born deaf or have very terrible hearing loss because of her because her um, progenitive hearing loss is genetic could be genetic, and it's I forgot to mention in Creed uh, Felicia Rashad the girl the woman who played. Um, the original Marie Anne Creed, um, or Marianne Creed? Uh, either way, uh, the original uh, woman who played Creed's wife in the Rocky series sadly died before this movie could uh, could go could could be made and could and they were going to address Rock, uh, uh, Apollo Creed, and so they recast her with Felicia Rashad, uh, best known as Claire Huxtable from The Cosby Show, and. This is her. This is a great comeback for her. This is a great way to say, like, look, yeah, I'm known as every. The, I was known as the eight, the eighties and nineties sitcom mom, but I'm just as capable as an actress as anybody else. And she works great as Marie and Mary. I, I'm not sure if it's Marie or Marianne Creed, but yeah, she works great as Adonis's mom and sort of this beleaguered wit, widow to Apollo who has to watch her. Uh, the, they never really address what the other kids are up to because they were, I think, at least two sons that Apollo had with her in the original series. But they never address what happened to those kids. But she is focused on having Adonis grow up and not turn into, not end up like his father. And unfortunately, it turned. You know, this movie showcases that he may very well end up like his father. But it's it, it, yeah, the whole arc of Adonis trying to pr- essentially uh, starting off trying wanting revenge himself against the Dragos for killing his dad, taking his dad what could have been a great father to him away from him, and it becomes a story of proving once again proving yourself, pro- overcoming your you know the overcoming your own baggage and proving you're stronger and. It's it's the end fight scene is amazing. The mid fight scene is solid. The end fight scene is amazing, and I think that I think the uh, training sequence, the training sequence that uh, Rocky does for Adonis here is not as iconic as the '80s montage training from Rocky IV up in Russia, but I think it works well. And but yeah, the final fight is great and it ends on a solid note. And it actually ties back into uh, Rocky's relationship with Rocky Jr. Uh, Robert, I think Robert Robert Balboa. Uh, after Rocky Balboa, we find out what we we, you know, we hear stuff that's been going on with him, and it's about you know it's, that becomes a subplot. Creed Two is just the best Rocky movie by this point, and unfortunately, the only reason for that is because it takes what came before it and enhances it. It it builds on its legacy and makes it even better. Rocky Four is better now because we know we see what happens to it in Creed Two. That I think is the sign of great filmmaking, and it's pr- it's proof that sequels and reboots can work amazing. They can do all kinds of things if the people making it have the passion, have the talent, and can prove that that this story isn't just a cash grab. This we have something to say. Damn it. And the people making these, the people in charge of this franchise now, 
they have they know what they're doing, and it's great stuff coming from them. This is a this is the high watermark for Rocky. I'm very curious how they plan to follow it up, but we'll see how that happens. Uh, if that happens, I'm, I'm assuming it, this is probably going to break box office records too. Uh, but we'll see. But but we'll see what, how they follow it, how they plan to follow it up. Uh, it's going to be a hard act to follow, that's for sure. This is our crusade. There are too many of them. Well, for you and me, this is not enough. Thousand pounds for the man who brings me on. This is not going to end well. And from our pick of the week to our unpopped kernel, we go from the best to the the de facto worst. It's not a it's not a terrible movie, but it's not it's it is the technically worst movie to come out this week, and that is. Summit Entertainment's Robin Hood. Or as I like to call it, Green Arrow Creed. Green Ar- Assassin's Green Arrow. That's not the, we don't want to try and tie it into the Creed, to Creed 2. No, no, no. No, 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 no. no. This movie, uh, from the jump, says, You know what? Screw it. We don't care. Why should you care? You, you, are you going to try and care about what we're doing? Because we don't care. This is this is the equi- This is the kind of thing where it's like we know we're bad. We're not trying to be good. So you're trying to compare us to being good? Well, we're not. We're not trying. Uh, we meant to be this bad. That's kind of what we got from this movie, and it follows the essential notes of the Robin Hood storyline. The idea that he was a lord who ended up going fighting in the Crusades, loses everything when he gets back, but through the help of a they something. I don't know where it was added, but uh, apparently they, you know, we see it in both Prince of Thieves and uh, Men in Tights acknowledge there. I don't know if it was in the uh, Ridley Scott one from 2010, but there's like, apparently there's a, a fight that someone, fr- a more from the cru- fighting that was that he met during the Crusades. Uh, it was uh, Dave Chappelle, young Dave Chappelle in Men in Tights, and it was... Uh, Morgan Freeman and uh, Prince of Thieves here. It's Jamie Foxx. And apparently that guy essentially helps Robin become Robin Hood. And yeah, the, but this, this is a hot mess. Um, well, for starters, the the costuming was all bought with Cole's cash. Seriously. The, the, everything, in the, everything in this movie you could make by just going to like a JC Penney's outlet store. They did not care about making a, a a good movie. They just w- went to the nearest department store, bought whatever fit the actors and said, "Yeah, that works." <laughs> God, it's like there's t-shirts and there's the his coat, Robin Hood's coat is like a puffy jacket. It's like that one of those puffy kind of jackets, kind of down jackets. Like I don't even know if that existed at the time period, but it, it, it doesn't care what year it is. Like I mentioned in my, I want to talk about it on Twitter. What year is it? And they're acknowledging that it is the Middle Ages because they're talking about the Third Crusade. And they're talking about the Crusades. They're going to the Middle East, where apparently it's the Iraq War now. Oh, God. This movie. There are, there are much more iconic breakdowns of this movie done by uh, I know specifically um, 
um, Dr. Nerdlove uh, over on Twitter has an amazing breakdown of just how bananas this movie is. You don't need, don't pay money to see this. Read his Twitter feed and then decide if you want to see that. Because otherwise you can wait until it's on FX. This is a movie made for FX. It's not made for being a, for, for, for theatrical consumption. This is what you watch on a Saturday, on a lazy Saturday on FX or USA. Um, so yeah, it, while it follows the basics, it essentially turns Robin Hood into Green Arrow. Like, literally Green Arrow. Like, they even, like, I swear they cribbed entire moments from the CW Arrow series. They had to have. They feel too blatant not to. I mean, they, they, they rip lines straight from Batman, but a lot of it is essentially Green Arrow. <laughs> oh, it's the worst. And then, of course, they try to throw in a revolutionary socialist agenda. Like, Robin Hood is a socialist icon. And the hood is the, essentially the Guy Fox mask. And they're fighting the sheriff of Nottingham, who's in league with the church. And the, so the government and the, and the, and the church, the, st- the church and the state are one and the same. And it's all exploiting the people in a mine that mines nothing. It mines, it mines fire. Apparently, because that's all that comes out of it. That doesn't matter. What do you mine in Nottingham? Does Nottingham have mines? What would you mine there? Like, what? Coal? Iron? Copper? What? They don't mention what they are even mining. It's just, they have a mine there so that the people can live in poverty. If people, if you're from England, and you live anywhere near or know about the Nottingham area, Please tell me what in the hell you would even mind there for. Especially in the Middle Ages of all times. God, it it wants to be a historical, like, almost its own otherworldly, like, reinvention of the character. And it sucks because they have no idea what they're doing. They don't understand how to make a truly populist socialist message. They have some of the dumbest writing I've seen in a movie all year. And and I will say this, it's a better Assassin's Creed movie than the actual Assassin's Creed movie, but that's about it. It's this is the best Assassin's Creed movie we've ever got. And but and I'm and I'm shocked I'm genuinely genuinely shocked that Ubisoft hasn't gone to medieval England and tied into the Robin and tied into the Robin Hood mythos. Like where's that Assassin like you're one of Robin Hood's merry men. You, that make that an Assassin's Creed game, I'd play it. As long as it didn't suck, but it's Ubisoft. Who, you, who can tell with them? And Taron Egerton, like Jamie Fox, sometimes chews the scenery. Taron Egerton is trying to play it straight, but Ben Mendelsohn, as the sheriff of Nottingham, does not care. Although he also makes reference to be, like, being assault, being sexually assaulted with a broomstick, which is really out of place and kind of nasty. Like, what does this have to do with anything? It's essentially like this movie's version of F. Batman. Because, like, we don't care about your standards of decency. We're edgy. We're the edgy, cool kid version of Robin Hood. You know, it's like it's like that internet, um, like, Newgrounds video that came out after they showed the redesigns for Lunatics Unleashed. It's like, I'm Budge Buddy and I'm edgy as F. I shoot lasers out of my eyes. That's, that's kind of what they're doing with Robin Hood. Uh, and that's the thing, a Robin Hood reinvention could work, 
Like, we've done enough of the medieval Robin Hood. Maybe have a reinvention, like, twenty five ninety nine or something like that. Whatever. Some future aspect. Some alternative universe uh, version of Robin Hood. Maybe don't set it in... Like, they're trying to make it steampunk? Okay, set it in Victorian England. Don't set it during the Middle Ages. Set it during Victorian England. But this movie has no idea what it's doing. Nobody has any idea what they're doing, and it's all sloppy and lazy and trying too hard. It's so bad. And the ending is, of course, like all like all terrible, great terrible movies, the ending is pure sequel bait. The ending is like, okay, now we got Robin Hood origins out of the way. We can tell the real story of, we can tell another story of Robin Hood. Ugh. Oh, it's so bad. Uh, at the same time, like, I had fun laughing at it. This is going to be a great get for bad movie nights in the future. Like, if you want to have a great night drinking and making fun of a bad movie, here's a good one. Here's a good modern day one for you. Because it's not, it's not as obnoxious like, as, like, The Asylum. Where they know they're bad, they're really not trying, and it's just, like, this is, this feels like tr trying hard enough just to make a point, just to be like, look, we're trying, see, we're trying. Whereas the Asylum is the kid who fills in all of, all D's on a Scantron test. Here, this, this person is at least trying to make it look like they know what they're doing, they just suck at it. <laughs> and, oh, oh boy. Like, this is gloriously stupid. And if you want a fun, bad time, find a theater that serves alcohol and get yourself plastered and just laugh. Treat this as the pure comedy that it is. Because it's not, because it's not good in any other aspect. You only win when you maintain your dignity. You don't know your own people. You, Mr. Big Shot, doing concerts for rich people. So if I'm not black enough, and if I'm not white enough, then tell me, Tony, what am I? Anyone can sound like Beethoven. With your music, what you do, only you can do that. What do we do about the bones? We do this. <laughs> Pick it up, Tony. Squirrels would eat it anyway. Pick it up. I think one of the great things about Twitter and expanding my sort of areas of influence in terms of media criticism is that I've become more aware of the, a lot of the inherent problems when trying to tackle things like race and representation and things of that nature. And it's with that in mind that I became much more trepidatious when going to see this movie because what we're dealing with here is essentially... A reverse driving with date, like on its surface, it's a reverse driving Miss Daisy, where it's about Marshala Ali being the sort of uh, charismatic, cultured uh, black character helping to better the uh, more low class, uh, closed minded main character played by Viggo Mortensen. And it's based on a true story. It's co written by the son of one of the main characters, namely. Um, uh, Tony, uh, v, v, uh, what is it, Villa Beggio? Um, let me get the name right. But, um, Tony the Lip, or not Tony the Lip, they actually make a point of this. Tony Lip, 
who actually went on to be uh, a sort of a, a prominent actor in like a lot of Italian crime. Uh, like he was featured in Godfather, I think Goodfellas, and uh, uh, Longa. Um, Nick Vallelonga. In fact, <laughs> Nick is one of the, is featured in the movie as as one you know as be, you know being alive when this was all going down, and this is about his dad. It's essentially about his dad driving around a very prominent black performer, namely uh, Doctor Sh- Doctor uh, what was it Donovan Shirley? Yeah, Doctor Don well, Doctor Don Shirley, and. Uh, Shirley is much more refined, upper class. It, it it plays off like the Odd Couple as well. Like you've got this uh, boorish lower class character, uh, work you know, uh, essentially co cohabiting with this very prim and proper posh character. Yeah, we've seen a lot of this stuff before, and I think that's kind of where um, the problems arise. Is that the movie falls into a lot of the tropes of these kinds of movie. It's very by the number. And unfortunately, I think it's because we've got Peter Farrelly, one of the ha- half of the Farrelly brothers, re- uh, co-writing and directing. We've got, I mean, Nick Vallelonga uh, applies some of the more honest sort of interpretation. Like, the fact, I think he's there, gets co-writing credit because it's partially his family story. But then we've got uh, Brian Hayes Curry, who is whose only other writing credit was Two Tickets to Paradise in 2006, which was a D.B. Sweeney-directed movie featuring him and John C. McGinley and Ned Bellamy. And who's the chick in this? Uh, Jen Brown or Mandy Brown? I can't tell. Uh, who, not Hooter Girl and Dancer on Bar. I don't know who the chick in the... In the wait, here we go. Let's look at the poster. Uh... D.B. Sweeney, who I mainly know for being <laughs> Flick in freaking uh, Moira Kelly is in the trailer, is in the poster. Oh, God. God, it looks like they put Dr. Cox's face on a college kid's body in this poster. Look up the poster for Two Tickets to Paradise. It is it is gloriously terrible Photoshop. Uh, but, yeah, we got John C. McGinley, D.B. Sweeney, who's co-directing, Moira Kelly, and Ed Harris. And once again, I was no, it wasn't flicking ants. It was um freaking the main character in Di- Disney's Dinosaur, I think. Let me see, two thousand. Uh, Strange Luck, C sixteen FBI, NYPD Blue, Book of Stars. Yeah, Aladar in Dinosaur. That's where I know him from. I knew it was one of those things. Uh, but he, yeah. That's where I know D.B. Sweeney from. I don't know him from anything else. Apparently, he's big on TV. And so, he apparently tried to direct a movie that was co-written by... That was written by one of the... That was co-written by the other guy from this movie. That's his only other writing credit. His other... His main... What he's known for on IMDb is bit players in Con Air, Armageddon, Beverly Hills Ninja, and Green Book. And he's a co-writer on this movie. Oof. Ooh, Ive. that's a bad sign. And of course, he gets to play one of the uh, bit, one of the one of the cameo walk-on roles as well, of course. But I'm not trying to deride this movie because I know a lot of people really like it. But my problem is that 
the main driving point is Viggo Mortensen and Marshala Ali. These are two amazing actors who could overcome the bad writing. And that's what the problem is. This is very base-level writing that's overcome by very powerful actors. And if not for them, there would be no reason to see this movie. Unfor- otherwise, this is the same issue that the movies like The Help, Driving Miss Daisy, and even, um, uh, I follow, uh, if you don't follow Jordane Searles on Twitter, uh, she, and she is one of the co-hosts of, uh, uh, I need to, every time I want to talk about her, I always forget what, like, all of her, uh, what do you call them, uh, all of her, like, um, like plug, like all the stuff she does. Um, let me pull her up real quick. Uh, but yeah, at J O U R D A Y E N. She is kind of one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. She has such a unique. She's a she's a you know a black woman from Georgia. She's um, currently date. I met her because she's currently dating um, Kyle Calgren, uh, formerly of Channel Awesome, and like she's even helped. She's even appeared in some of his uh, vlogs. They've co-reviewed new releases. Sadly, they don't do that as much anymore. And I love their perspective. It's just I don't think they they feel comfortable doing that, and that's fine. She's a she's a writer and you know critic herself. Uh, Bitch Media and Thrillist. She's written for Bad Romance Pod, is a podcast uh, where she reviews bad romantic comedies, (laughs) clearly, and uh, she does that with. uh, Let me see what's her name. Braun.com, I'm not familiar. Uh, I think, but yeah, this is, this is, I, I, this is one of those podcasts that I need to get into because this is right up my alley. And it's, yeah, these, these are two comedians and they, who are very, like, she, I think Jordane also went to film school and she is, she's even, she's written screenplay. She's written, she's, she's made short films, I think. I think she's even worked on feature film, you know, small feature films. But she is one of the best people to follow on Twitter in terms of media criticism. She is, I highly recommend you follow Jordane on Twitter. Just, she is wonderful. She's good people. And she was kind of the main reason I'm, uh, I I was, I was essentially tripping. I was, I was looking forward to this movie. And then I was, I was hearing her talk about it. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh. And that's kind of where I fall. Like it's be- it's because of hearing criticisms like hers and like others who are kind of pointing out the very blatant faults with the movie that I'm seeing them myself and I can't unsee them. So I can't really praise the movie too much. Like the best thing going for it is its lead actors. They are they are powerhouses. They could make anything look good, and so they do this that with this movie. And I think. That combined with the very crowd-pleasing moments of it. Like, we like seeing Viggo Mortensen beat up uh, racists and bigots. And we like seeing these two guys kind of get, like, be odd couples. And, like, there's a reason that formula still works. Although it didn't work for the odd couple reboot. (laughs) Um, but, but But it's the more of the underlying problems. Things like, you see in the trailer, and he, that... Apparently, Viggo Mortensen had to introduce fried chicken to Marshal Ali. Like, he, apparently, 
apparently Don Shirley had never eaten fried chicken in his life. And that, this movie's so reliant on stereotypes, and that's the biggest problem with it, is that its version of race relations is all based on, hey, fangul, hey, what's the matter for you, kind of Italian stereotypes. And then all, all their understanding of black people comes from all long-standing black stereotypes. And this very may, very may well could have been the case with uh, Tony and Don and Dr. Shirley, but seeing it play out like that is very, feels very disingenuous, especially when you're g- given the fact that the three filmmakers behind this, the three writers and the director, one of whom is both co-writer, one of the, one of the director being one of the co-writers, are all white dudes. This feels like white dude, and Jordan brought this up with uh, three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri as well. This feels like white dudes commenting on race relations, and it, and that never. And unless you are engrossed in the and re, the real issues involving uh, a racial community, a minority community, unless you talk to those people or. Are are informed about those people. You should not talk about them. That's why I'm very trepidatious on talking about. Cult. I mean, I mean, that's why I brought up in that episode about talking about things as an outsider. I cannot comment thing on things uh, uh, as somebody who is not black, who's not LGBT, who's not Hispanic, who's not Asian, who's not Muslim. Uh, all of these things I cannot really comment on because I am not. I've never, I have not, nor have I ever been a member of a lot of their communities. I'm only an outsider. And so a lot of my criticism comes from hearing other people talk about it. But it's not, it's not widespread. Like the guys from Double Toasted, they love the movie. They've had a, they found it enjoyable. And that's because it is a crowd pleaser. It is, it, it utilizes, it's, it's Peter Fairley. So it, he utilizes humor in a way that's very endearing. And I laughed a lot at this movie. It's a very funny movie. It's not a true comedy, but it's very comedic. And unfortunately, that could only do. That's why I keep this. That's why this movie is much more enjoyable than things like Driving Miss Daisy. From what I've heard, I've never seen it. I only know it's it's a Oscar bait movie, and I feel like this is trying to do the same, but it's not as it's not as high in itself. It's not like The Blind Side or like The Help, where it's it feels so up its own ass about trying to t- about white people talking about race issues like they're woke. <laughs> and once again, even even that even utilizing that term makes me feel like I'm uh, like I'm like I'm co-opting somebody else's language, but that's the thing. Trying to sound like you're you're uh, you're understanding these people, you know, these people's livelihoods, their culture, their who they are, their struggles, and you're not talking to them, you're not allowing them in on the process. You could have had anyone, you know, you could have had another Instead of having this, whoever this guy is, Brian Hayes Curry, who only wrote one other movie, why is he co-writer? Why didn't you bring in like a, a black writer, or why you know why don't you have somebody, some more people involved in the creative process who could bring in more insight as you know and have it be a real coming together of of, of black and white culture and have these to have, have showcase exactly what you're trying to get across through the movie, which is when we coexist and when we talk to one another, we 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 better ourselves. But yeah, uh, without that, it definitely feels like white people talking about here's the solution to solving racism, and it's like, yeah, no, nah, dude, no, nah, you you have no idea. What, you're trying to deliver, you know, solving racism and platitudes, and it's like that's 
that's not how you solve things. That's not going to solve the underlying issues. And it gets to a lot of truths, but at the same time, it's like, like there's a moment where Viggo Mortensen tells Dr. Shirley that he's more black as a as a poor Italian man in the Bronx than Marshala than Dr. Shirley is being a wealthy, very very you know classically trained pianist, as though that makes him not black. And I know that's a that's a problem within the black community as well. You see, like Donald Glover has addressed that the idea that if you don't fall into certain stereotypes, you're not really black. And hearing you know members of the members of that community address those issues that's important that's 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 enlightening that's how we for that's how we further the conversation having somebody on the outside comment on hey here's an issue here's an issue with black culture how come that how come black people how can how come black people have to be poor and bro, have to be poor and lower class and and like stereotype follow all these stereotypes eat damn fried chicken like literally kentucky fried chicken like it's almost a plug for kentucky fried chicken uh, this movie, it's once again, it's not bad. So like, it's not terrible. It's not something I I say skip. I can't say skip because they're the comedic elements and the two and Marshall Ali and Viggo Mortensen work great together. They 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 really make this movie worth seeing. But man, are these three people not qualified to talk about these kind of issues? It, Hopefully unqualified. Oh well, we're cu- we're coming. We're already cutting a bit long, so we're going to take a quick break here, and then when we come back. We're going to talk about the other three movies I saw this weekend. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Melody. I'm Max. I'm Dexter. I'm Diana. And I'm John. And together, we host the book review and discussion podcast, Living in the Stacks. Every two weeks, we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it. We'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us, Living in the Stacks, available through Gumby Cat Networks. news and that doesn't mean we have it does now this campaign is about the future not rumors not sleeves i care about the sanctity of this process whether you do or do not in a matter of days hearts campaign has collapsed we're talking about how you get through today without pissing away everything we've all worked for on this campaign we lose this, we can kiss the White House goodbye. All right, the last three are, you know, like with Green Book, are all biopics. So we're starting things off with the latest from Jason Reitman in uh, The Front Runner, which is based on the three-week run in 1988 of Gary Hart for um, the Democratic candidate for, for president against uh, George H.W. Bush. And... For three weeks, he was the front runner. He was he had a failed run in 1984 where he lost to Walter Mondale. 
1988, he was considered the front runner. He was a he was a spitfire. He was pushing for 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 progressive ideals. He was a he was able to speak to people. He was able to break down these concepts and un, you know kind of disprove all of the of right wing talking points. He was a very well edu- he was very well spoken, very educated, very po- very powerful speaker. And he was very charismatic, and his whole campaign derailed after it became a, a tabloid show because it was discovered he was having an affair. And the movie starts off with him starting the campaign on a high note, and then by the end of the first week, we start to see it begin to unravel. Uh, basically, the problem with Gary Hart was he was so focused on ideals and having this very old notion of their, you know, they're having privacy, like Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, their 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 de- their sort of details and personal lives were never talked about on the main page. But after after Gary Hart, that became the standard. Like the newspapers of the day, the papers of record, the Times, the Posts, the the various Times and Posts and Heralds. They all began to talk about politics like it was entertainment. They began to turn into tabloid magazines. And it started with the Miami Herald. After they received a tip that Gary Hart was having an affair, and they, they, they did a very, very slap-shot stakeout and investigation into whether or not that was true. And unfortunately, because Gary Hart really had no, tried so hard to make it not make his campaign not about that that he ultimately became the, that ultimately became the center of his campaign and news media from local journalists to nat- CNN and national outlets were all harassing his wife and daughter they were harassed they eventually when it was revealed who the girl was harassed her they were harassing him and it was never it, be- it stopped being about him as a candidate and started being about him as a person and he hated that he that's not he thought that's not what politics was about politics was about ideas and unfortunately it's because of his own arrogance in that regard and his own unwillingness to sort to see that it's those personal affectations those personal traits that begin to show people who you are that you begin that 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 he lost the lost the um you know the support of the of the people around him, and he was so dead set on just trying to run things like they always did, and it's not make it not about you know trying to sound like he's above it all. That unfortunately he he sounded like he was disconnected from reality, and it's what eventually drove his career. Not maybe not his career, but definitely that that campaign, his chances at becoming president. They were just driven straight into the ground. And I think the main thing... That's the thing. The main focus of this movie is namely that the that the new, that news media was went from being about what Hart was talking about. Ideas. About presenting politicians and what, what they spoke for and the marketplace of ideas. Unfortunately, after, the Gary, after Gary Hart's campaign, it became entertainment. It became all about, ooh, what's going hot? Got what's the hot gossip? You know, what's what's the dirt? What's what's going on with these people? 
And we see that even to this day. We see that going on with the, all, all of our candidates undergo this same level of tabloid scrutiny from major publications still. Major out news outlets have become tabloid, have turned politics into tabloid journal, tabloid style yellow journalism. That's, that's always kind of been cyclical. They, they've always kind of, there was always, like during the, I think the, the early 20th century, there was, that's where yellow journalism was coined. The idea that you were turning, that you were just basically trying to drum up headlines in order to make money instead of being about, you know, trying to make, make a statement. And unfortunately, it's because of that mentality, the idea that papers are not meant to be record, to be to basically be the record keeper of history. They are they were more they were they're 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 money printers. They're supposed to make money for whoever owns the paper, and that's when it stopped being about the covering what the truth and more so about covering what will make headlines. And the Herald was definitely painted as the main antagonist in all this. They were slap, they were they were sloppy. They were they were sleazy. They were very. The Miami Herald comes out as the loser in all of this because they were the ones who were pushing it. They were the ones who dragged themselves through the mud in order to, to in order essentially just to sell papers in order to break a story that also that didn't need like. Whether or not Gary Hart even had had an affair, that may have been something for gossip magazines. That may have been something to be like, how does this you know how does this compare to his character and whatnot? That it became about his character in terms of addressing the affair, but the way it started was very much like a National Enquirer. The Miami Herald became the National Enquirer in, in trying to uncover. What was essentially just the same kind of stuff that politicians always do. Why was Gary Hart different from any of the other politicians in D.C. having affairs on their wives? You know? It's that sort of thing. It's just because he was the hot ticket and he was already being talked about. So he need, you can make money by pointing out that he's also having an affair. Unfortunately, because Hart was unable to break the, you know, kind of un, to kind of break that attention onto his campaign... If he came straight forward with it and be like, "Look, whatever happened between me and you know, what and whatnot," if he was honest and straightforward about it, he may have been able to save it. But he was so dead set on putting it on, on on brushing it under the rug and ignoring it and trying to make it all about the ideas that he lost. He couldn't because people were hounding him because he wouldn't address it. I feel like if he came out the gate like, look, here's what happened. Miami Herald's a bunch of douchebags. Now can we get back to business? Uh, but unfortunately, he felt, it felt it was so beneath him that he essentially threw away his campaign because he was so, thought he was so above the mudslinging and the dirt of, the, of, the, of what had become present-day news journalism. News journalism. That feels so redundant, damn it. Political journalism, essentially. And yeah, I, I also, but at the same time, it never says Gary Hart is a good guy because, like, he did he didn't he he you know he essentially ruined this woman's livelihood who who was a well trained like I think she was a pharmacist and she was you know she was a she was a smart woman who had a career going for her and she just wanted to help out the campaign and because Gary Hart essentially lost was unable to control himself and just tried to instead of just being like hey why don't you come to campaign headquarters 
he said, why don't you come to my my private D.C. Home, townhouse? Like, okay, dude. Like, if you really wanted this to be about her joining the campaign, whether or not she that's what she wanted or not, we don't know. That part of the movie is never revealed because I don't think it was ever revealed who instigated what. But at the same time, if it was about her joining the campaign, they did it. That's clearly not what they how the way they went about it. They went about it in a very demonstrably sleazy, underhanded way. And it's very clear that something else was going on, whether it was sexual, whether it was romantic. It's hard to say. We weren't there. But, yeah, Gary Hart was not innocent in all of this. And apparently he also had a history of infidelity, and it's just a matter of the fact that he couldn't break himself free from that. The fact that he tried to ignore it is what essentially ruined him. Whereas I feel like when the Clinton stuff came out, he tackled it head on. And that's kind of why people, his supporters never really faltered because he he was willing to address it. Whereas Hart was so and and once again Clinton and well, clearly Clinton's a dude uh, as a as a colossal tool and a and a womanizer and a piece of garbage per, per, uh, personally speaking. But Gary Hart, I got the feeling of his biggest flaw was arrogance. He was so dead set on being above it all that. When he that he finally got dragged down to earth by his own hubris, by wanting to stay above it all, he lost. He lost. You know, he, his his wings gave way, and he fell to earth. And whatever he's doing now, they never reveal. Apparently, he's still married to his wife, which is the only post credits thing we, you know, the only post story thing we uh, we hear about him. But it's it it is a it, it is a study in hubris and how, and it's also a study in how journalism went from being about presenting, you know, the, the the you know the more important aspects of candidates and of politics, and started becoming more about yellow style muckraking and whatever headlines will get you the most attention, and it's kind of still the main problem with with a lot of coverage today. Even though people are are trying to overcome that. It, it is a it is a long process. You still can't avoid that aspect of journalism now, even though they are. You do see some outlets trying to change. It's a very hard thing to overcome when it's been your de facto style of journalism for decades. So, I think that's and I think that's kind of why I like this movie. It's not an amazing movie. I feel like Thank You for Smoking is a way better sort of. Um, sort of uh, breakdown of politics and of the ills of politics. But this is a great sort of, you know, uh, character study. It's it's seeing how Gary Hart's campaign rose and fall, fell so quickly because of the way, not only the way he handled himself, but the way he handled, the way he was unable to address the issue at hand. And he was so focused on presenting his 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 beliefs and his other aspects of his personality and keep his private self private, his private life private, that he unfortunately couldn't maintain control. And it's just as much about him lo- losing control because of his own actions and his own inability to address his actions as, as much as it is about the, the sort of degradation of journalism as we know it. So... I highly recommend The Front Runner if you get the chance to see it. I think it's a great return to form for for Reitman. I forget what his last movie was, but it's been a while since I... I know um, 
he's still using like up in the air as his uh like the, the he's that's what his uh logo his company logo is based on. Um Labor Day, he was a producer on director. Tully. Okay, this year's t- Tully was this year? God, 2018's been a long been a long time. Um yeah, so Tull so so Tully yeah, meh, Labor Day, meh. Young Adult was alright. I never saw Up in the Air. Uh, Juno was probably his big one. But I still think Thank You for Smoking is probably his best. And that was his first first uh, feature film. I think it's 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 kind of the best he's done. I have to see the other stuff to be sure. But yeah, this is a great return to form for him. And I think he, he does great. I think Up in the Air tried to tackle a lot of these kind of pressing issues as well. But yeah, I... Once again, I, this is all good stuff. If you get the chance, I highly recommend it. It's a great—I think it's a great sort of breakdown of all that, and it's a fairly faithful biopic as well. So, that, so that helps. It's hard as hell to get sober, but I love my family. I want them to be proud of me. how scared you are. It'll pass, though. It always does. Nick, what you have is extraordinary. And you're gonna get it back. You're gonna find it again. Man, we are just going long today. This is going to be a super long episode. They don't call it a super mega awesome movie review madness for nothing. Hey, so yeah, we're moving on to the last two, the boy duology that I saw this weekend. First up is Beautiful Boy, which is based on... Let me pull up the memoir names to be sure. But this is starring Steve Carell and uh, Timothée Timothée Chalamet from uh, Can I Call You By Your Name? I believe the the one that got a lot of buzz last uh, last award season, and those are the big names. We got more Tierney, Amy Ryan in it. Uh, those are kind of the only other Amy Forsyth you may recognize, but yeah, the big names are Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet, and they are they play. Let me see two credits. Uh, David and Nick Chef. David being the old the father, Nick being the son. And the two, their their two memoirs about Nick being addicted to drugs and David having to deal with his son being addicted to drugs and seeing this see you know not being essentially helpless and trying to trying to trying to you know you know <laughs> save his boy and this is this is from I'm, I'm guessing Danish Flanders Belgian uh, director Felix van Grit. Greningen, I'm guessing G R O E N I N G E N, mainly mainly European directors. Steve plus Sky, uh, the Misfortunates, the Broken Circle Breakdown, Belgica. Those are his main director. Uh, those are the main movies he's directed. Uh, indie stuff and a lot of European stuff. This is probably his biggest uh, movie to, movie so far, and I'm not that into it. I think the problem arises from the fact that this is very cold. This is the same issues I've had with First Man. I think uh, Van Greningen, Van Greningen, 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 
Howard, uh, I believe that Felix's uh, style of filmmaking and um, I've already forgotten uh, who did first man. I, I I don't like the guy, and I, I can't remember his name. I think about him so little. Uh, Damien Chazelle. Uh, I think both of them kind of follow the very European technical focus on filmmaking, where it's not so much. These are these are men focused on um, well, specifically these are these are directors, not men. I mean, they are men, but anyway, um, these are directors who are mainly focused on the technical side of filmmaking, where they're making film as if it were an art piece and they neglect one of the major components of film meaning that it's a performance art piece so you can make a beautifully rendered shot and you can make wonderful cinematography but if the actors aren't giving good performances and the storytelling like film is a very very hodgepodge homunculan style like beast of an art form theater is is mainly performance art with some technical uh, aspects to it music is a very you know straightforward art form uh visual art painting sculpture that's very straightforward film is an amalgamation of music of theater of foot of photography and painting it's all mushmashed, mangled, and blended together into a single thing. And when you focus too much on a singular aspect of the of the of art that is part of the process, you essentially alienate you know the other the people who are interested into it for the other aspect. So if you neglect the writing, the storytelling, uh, if you neglect the acting, performing, if you neglect the technical side, the, the 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 visuals. If you neglect any aspect of the filmmaking process, and you're not not well versed in those, you end up making a only semi. It only makes part of a movie. The best movies are able to utilize every aspect of the process, but some directors are only good, like Michael Bay. Not to t- not to tie Felix Van Groningen to Michael Bay, but Bay and Zack Snyder, they're also technical directors. They are focused on the visual aspect of pro- of the process, the photography, the visual design, and in doing folk and that being their expertise, they are unable to make w- movies that last that that are that are memorable for their performances, their storytelling. Whereas actor, when actors turn into filmmakers, uh, Joel Edgerton, we're going to talk about in a bit, um, or uh, Bre- or perfect example. Uh, I ha- why well, can't I remember his name? Rock freaking Rocket Raccoon. Uh, Bradley Cooper. I'm terrible at names right now. Um, Bradley Cooper, when he directed, when he, when he became, when he started directing, when he remade A Star is Born, it was very actor driven. It was very performance driven. And that's kind of what made it more memorable than the previous other ones, which are very stylized and very light on the story, more heavily on the, on the older style of performing, be it theatrical, sort of over the top performing or in the case of the 70s one more musical performing not very much acting performing whereas 
by virtue of having a classically trained musician and a very well-trained actor working together to create something that features both good music and singing as well as good acting, you have a very powerfully performance-driven movie that also features good writing and good good cinematography, and it's a very well-put-together film that understands all of the aspects that make a film good. I talk about this because Beautiful Boy, while it has a great and compelling story, is shot like it's an art film, and so it's very long and lingering shots of of, of things that don't propel the story forward, while it's also dealing with... Um, very lackadaisical performing. Like, Steve Carell looks better in the upcoming... Like, things like the upcoming Vice about Dick Cheney or the upcoming Welcome to Marwen. He's giving more of a performance there than he is here, whereas here he's kind of, like, going through the motions. It's like he is being told not to not to emote. He seems like he was very clinical. That's, like, my, my, my criticism of First Man. It's very clinical, distant, cold... And I don't know if that's just Grinigan Scott, stop, Van Grinigan style, or if it's just yeah, maybe there's a language barrier or something like that. I know a lot of European directors will will not, you know, if they if they're not well versed in you know directing Hollywood actors, then they're not gonna not not all of them can really make the jump from making European film to making American Hollywood style films. But yeah, this this is a great story. I feel like the memoirs would be amazing, but I can't tell. You, I feel like every five minutes I was pulling out my phone just because I was so bored by this movie. And it's a good good story. I can't put it as a bl- one of the blandest movies of the year because even though the the I like this movie has a compelling story. It has a compelling story about drug addiction. It has a compelling story about family tr- family uh, tragedy and how to overcome. Fam, you know, family. You know, dysfunction within their family, and try to uh, how to tr- how to help treat an addict as a family, and it's just sad that all, what would have made an amazing movie is made into a very boring, drawn out, and distant movie. It's a very, it's very much, it's very clinical in its delivery, and I feel like that was the mistake. Is that. This could have, like, it didn't have to be melodramatic, but allowing for more of the emotion that these characters would be feeling instead of having them deliver. Like, there are lines that almost feel like they're being delivered robotically. Like, there's a point where Steve Carell tells his son that he no longer is welcome at his house, and it sounds like he's being, a, he's, he was told to deliver it like a robot. No, son, you're not allowed to come, you're not allowed to come to my house anymore. It sounds like he's reading for Siri, you know? So... I feel, I, it looks like I'm not alone in this. Thankfully, I feel like I hate when I hate when it feels like I'm the only one talking about this aspect of a movie, you know, whether I liked it or not. And I'm I'm in my little I'm in my lonely table for one. But it feels like a lot. I'm I'm kind of tapping into something that a lot of people are noticing about it. That it's not a very compelling movie. It's a compelling story. The books are probably amazing, but. What we have in terms of a movie is a very indie style movie, where you know, where I, as much as independent film is not entirely one thing, Hollywood indie is very much the sort of cold, distant, artistic, attempting to sound feel artistic when it has nothing else go, really going for it, and that what what however they try to feel artistic depends on the era. But 
this feel this I saw this in an art house theater and it felt very appropriate because it felt like I was I was I was supposed to sit there like hmm yes I see the mise en scène is very well executed in this scene ah yes the transition from this scene to the next is very well done yes excellent and that's not why I see movies I don't see movies to critique them like 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 I'm going to a museum I see movies to be told interesting stories movies can be visually compelling as well artistically driven sure but if you're being cold and distant and you're not engaging me then why am i here you know so i think that's kind of ultimately where i come down this isn't going to be one of my i would be surprised if people really nominated this for any award just because it's not it's the stories are good but i feel like a better filmmaker could make it more engaging is all I imagine that God and the devil are having a bet over me. You believe in the devil? They look like me. Just sit. Where is all this anger coming from? Because you're making me angry. Hey. You're all crazy. Mom. What's the matter? Please, I'm in trouble. Mom. Shut up. Now. You may have to walk away from everything. Everyone. A mother knows when something is right. You're going to ruin that child. What are your actual qualifications, Mr. Sire? Shame on you! With my beliefs, I may have set myself up to lose you. And I've had to ask myself if I'm ready for that. Whatever happens next, it is still your choice. Man, I have a real hard decision to make. Do I end on the movie that was more boring for the weekend, or do I end on the one that's really sad and tragic? And I think I ended up with the one that engaged me more, the one that is a super downer, and that's Joel Edgerton's second feature film after The Gift uh, as a direct writer director, and that is the adaptation of Gerard of Gerard. Uh, Conley, I think it's a, it's a not, it's not spelling G A R R A R D, I believe. Uh, Conley's memoir about um, his time being in a gay conversion therapy center. Uh, for those who aren't aware, um, Gerard Conley is the uh, is the son of a Baptist minister. Uh, here in the movie, played by Russell Crowe, who looked dead ringer for the dude's father. It is, it is nuts to think that that's what. Uh, that, that the two were that close together, that they really, I mean, the head crow gained some weight, clearly, but the dude looks like a dead ringer for the guy's father. It's insane. Whereas Nicole Kidman was much more lean and kind of like, like a, like a much lean, like the, the Conley's mom in the, in the, in the after movie epilogue, uh, looked more like Tammy Faye Baker. Here, uh, Nicole Kidman is much, it's like she's half of um his mom like i feel like if like if nicole kidman was willing to gain uh, some gain weight them to kind of round herself out like uh crow did they she looked more like the mom but i'm not gonna demand nicole kidman gain weight for the role i mean it, i mean she gives the great performance either way so who cares uh point is uh Connelly's parents are were devout baptist conservative baptists and while he was in college um I won't reveal the nature of it, but specifically, he was targeted and assault and sexually assaulted, and the re- and it, that was revealed to his parents 
which led to him coming out as gay to them. And when that happened, his dad uh, was given the advice to send him to a gay conversion therapy center run by, uh, in the movie, by Joel Edgerton uh, as this very charismatic preacher trying try, making it sound like he knows what he's doing but he, if you know anything about psychology about counseling about anything you realize this dude's full of it this dude is this dude's a madman and you we the audience can see it clearly but it's insane the things that happen in this movie and that's the thing this is just t- barely scratching the surface about the kind of torture and villainy that goes on in these conversion therapy centers and Yet at the same time, what we the the tip of the iceberg for these kinds of things is also very horrifying. So, yeah, yeah, gay conversion therapy is bad. Apparently, he, you know, just in case we needed to be reminded that this is a bad thing, this is a bad thing. Anyway, um, here we have Lucas Hedges as uh, I believe they Jared Eels. They they went in the they, they called him in the movie. They didn't use um, his, they didn't use his. Uh, official name. Uh, the guy, you know, it wasn't a straight biopic. It's more, you know, some of the names were changed. Uh, yeah, Gerard, Co- Ger- Gerard Codley. Uh, and Joel Edgerton wrote the screenplay. Uh, and uh, you got Lucas Hedges here as, um, oh, looks like, uh, okay, Nicole Kidman's not a bad choice. Uh, they've, sorry, uh, they I thought I guess it was a bad picture at the end, but I'm looking at uh, IMDb has Nicole Kidman uh, sitting down next to Gerard's mom, and they're not too they're not too far off. So yeah, uh, that so yeah, good casting, solid stuff. Anyway, um, Lucas Hedges you may know from he got his he was kind of he kind of broke in um, Manchester by the Sea. He is also uh, oddly enough the gay uh, love the the the. the well, I, I, that may be kind of spoiling, but it's been a, it, it's been a long enough, I think. Basically, the the one the, the one love interest who came out to uh, Lady Bird, um, it, to came out to Saoirse Ronan and Lady Bird. Uh, he was the son in Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, and he was also Redford in Moonrise Kingdom. I think that was the main um, main boy. Uh, so that's kind of where he began. That's kind of his biggest thing. Oh God, he was in the slap. Oh, that's probably his. Oh, hey, speaking of Jason Reitman, he was in Labor Day as a son. And um, he was also in the Zero Theorem, Grand Budapest Hotel, Kill the Messenger. Lot, got all good stuff for this boy, for this guy. Um, he was also just in mid '90s as well. He was the older brother in that. And so this dude's on the rise. He's a phenomenal actor too. He has a he has a unique look about him. And here he you know like he sometimes he'll play like the 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 asshole brother or the the angsty son. Uh, a lot of angsty son roles, but here he's actually given the chance to shine as this, um, you know, in the closet gay soon, and then eventually out of the closet gay character, gay per, you know, gay gay boy, gay young man who relives his gay his experiences to what to what finally led him to accept the fact that he's gay, and unfortunately, when finally coming out, instead of being met with um, met with love and acceptance he has been sent to a conversion therapy camp where it's essentially prison it's prison to try and try and get you to stop being gay by using pseudopsychology and 
and torture. Like they like they don't shy away from the fact that it is that that torture goes on in these in these centers. Like specifically, like there's a so there's psychological torment and then there's physical abuse. These can these centers are horrific. And if you think otherwise, you have a problem. You have no understanding of human empathy and psychology and just how how human beings function. And to think that this is what this can make you stop being gay. Like even the movie acknowledges that one the the the, the guy. <laughs> you know the guy who ran the center wasn't wasn't being honest with himself either, and it's just he's abusing other people to try and cover the fact that he himself had these kind of issues. And he instead of being just accepting who he was, he tried to tried to he tried to clamp it down and remove it. Whereas I feel like, and I feel like that's a, one of the major issues with a lot of conservative religiosity is that you have instead of. Um, accepting this aspect of who, who you are, you're so torn, you're so hell bent on your dogma that anybody who goes against it is the is the enemy. Essentially, is in is, is wrong and is the and is the villain. Like there's a whole point where um, J- Jared Amons, E A M O N S, is um, is is what the, is the name they use for. Uh, for uh, Gerard's for the for the stand-in for Gerard Conley, and the thing with like even he acknowledge even he stands up to the fact that he's not angry at his dad or anybody else. He do, he does he's not he, there's not a reason for him being gay. He's just gay, and unfortunately that can't fit into the mindset of the kind of people that run these centers. They're so clearly, you know, disconnected from reality that he, that they end up ultimately causing more damage and, and harm to people, to, um, to, to the people at these centers because they have no idea what they're doing. And, it, and so you, and so it doesn't take long for Jared uh, to realize that this is all BS. Like this is all, and that's the thing. Edgerton makes sure to lighten up the movie to keep it going and add levity to break the tension. Because otherwise, it's just two hours of just soul crushing, just trauma that you're witnessing. And so he, and so here he breaks up the breaks up the 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 drama with these instances of comedy and levity by having Jared point out things like, Oh, the, the, the handbook they give us is riddled with typos. And there's, there's a great, and there's a great instance where the, where Nicole Kidman as the mom is reading these things. And like, Oh, Oh, this is just, this is, this is unacceptable. This is a church and they're misspelling basic, basic, basic words. It's like, nobody cared. Like what? There was not like this is what two thousand four. Like apparently this is predating spell check, and nobody knew how to proofread this damn thing. It is it is so haphazard and 
and un, unprofessional. And that's kind of, and that helps to kind of solidify. That's the thing. Nicole Kidman's arc in this movie as the mom coming to understand that what they're doing is wrong is very powerful as well. Like the main thrust of the movie is Lucas Hedges real coming to terms with the fact that he, and accepting himself as a gay man. And it's and then the co and then the supporting arc is Nicole Kidman as his mom who has to accept that fact as well and realize that what she's doing and the things that they're doing are harmful to her son and realizing that in order to get the best out of her son she needs to accept this fact about him and of course <laughs> there's a moment in the there are moments in this movie that capture exactly the uh, kind of. Uh, the kind of kind of relationships kids have with their mom, like there's a like there's a whole running running joke through the movie about him running his hands uh, out the window, like you know doing the wave motion. Just I mean, hey, yeah, that's fun. You like doing that? It's a it's a yeah, it's a great it's kind of a great sensation to have the wind blowing through across your skin and whatnot. And her whole thing is that don't do that. Your arm will get cut off by a truck or something. And he's like, mom, that never happens. And it all leads to a great punchline at the end of the movie. <laughs> it's a great running theme throughout the movie. And yeah, I think Edgerton is really proving himself as a writer director. And here he is the main villain of the movie by by you know main antagonist, main villainous character of the movie at this. As this, as the head of this conversion program, and he is just a monster to these kids. He is horribly abusive, and it's all in the name of this thing that doesn't even work. And I think that's the main thrust of it: is that it doesn't work. It do, it has no basis in psychology. And like there, like there's a whole point where at the beginning, during a during a flashback, where. Um, Jared goes to his family doctor, and even she's like, look, I know what their parents told me what they were doing, and I'm telling you, as a, somebody who studied science, this isn't going to work. Are you sure about this? And so I think the fact that people, people who know better are like, this, is, this isn't good. This is a bad. Please don't. Please let's not. And yet it acknowledges the, the, the problem, that there are like 36 or 38 states that allow for this kind of thing. In fact, just to be... Just to be curious, I really hope. Because I know it's probably mostly the Deep South, but here we go. Uh, LGBTmap.org. Um, I, sh I shouldn't be surprised. So they meant the, they mentioned at the the end of this movie is very very much on point. The, it, it takes the story, it takes your art story and makes it, reminds people that this kind of thing is still allowed. Like even a very liberal state like Massachusetts has no, 36 states, they have no laws on the, Massachusetts and New York have no laws on the books banning, ban, having statewide bans on gay conversion therapy. The only, there are only 14 states plus DC that have these. You have Vermont and New Hampshire, match. Uh, Rhode Island and Connecticut, okay. New Jersey, nice. Delaware, okay. Maryland, mm hmm. New Mexico, mm hmm. Illinois, Washington, and then Washington, Oregon, Nevada, and, Colorado, and uh, California, as well as Hawaii. So, most of the, a lot of the red states don't have this. That that's that's to be expected. But the fact that Massachusetts and New York have no laws on the states. That even acknowledge not even, not even not even a just like no laws in the state 
in the, in, 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 across the state to to ban these sorts of things. Whereas we look at local bans, fourteen uh, percent of Ohio has them. New York has that's where there are more local bans in uh, New York, in Wisconsin, in Arizona, and in Florida and Pennsylvania. There are no local, half of the local um, half of the local municipalities in New York. Have, have bans on gay conversion therapy. There are none in Massachusetts. That is astounding to me to have, be one of the first states to allow gay marriage to not have any any sort of um, laws pro, uh, banning this very horrific treatment of gay youths. That's that's terrible. Um, where's the uh, uh, discrimination law? Religious exemption law, youth laws and policies, health and safety, grand totals, sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, that's like, it's, I, I do like, I did notice that um, uh, Summit County only has, Summit County and Stark County here in Ohio only have city protections. And, but the the only and the only county that the only county that has a county wide protection for LGBT uh, citizens is Cuyahoga County, the seat uh you know the one that has Cleveland as its seat. Um, Akron has protections uh, as well as most of the cities in Cleveland, Youngstown, Dayton, Columbus, uh, Canton. Although Canton's comes with a note, uh, are not fully comprehensive. Um, so Canton's not fully protected but Akron you're fully protected under, under the city law to for, for against uh, against um, discrimination but here we go conversion therapy bans city city bans in Toledo Cleveland Columbus Dayton Cincinnati and Athens oh yeah totally called it also Lakewood not even Cleveland proper Lakewood that is bananas well I know what I'm writing to my local council members about after this. Uh, in fact, I'll probably do it tomorrow or recent or sometime this week. Because yeah, after seeing this movie and realizing that we'll provide uh, anti-discrimination laws, but we won't ban the outright use of conversion therapy. Yeah, we should be joining. In fact, Cleveland itself. And like, I'm going to propose. Um, I can, I'm going to definitely pr- talk to uh, my local representatives in the city of Akron and in the and in Summit County about proposing countywide protections and bans on uh, gay conversion therapy because and you know of course more for more uh, LGBT protection because it's 20 goddamn 18 we shouldn't have we shouldn't be this shouldn't be an issue by now but <sighs> welcome to welcome to America in 2018 damn it I don't know. Well, that about ends the review portion. <laughs> Very down note. Although, once again, uh, I will say this. Um, I consider this movie, as, as an end note, this is a movie I consider to be a sort of rev- a sort of flip side to Love, Simon. Love, Simon is a very ideal uh, depiction of gay coming out as gay in, in America in 2018. And it's a very loving and accepting Give treatment of you know it's not it's not perfect. You still meet people who are ignorant and who are bigoted and who mistreat you. But your family loves you, your friends love you, and you are accept, accepted in love for who you are. 
that's the ideal. That should be every. That should what we. That's what we should be doing for any kid who comes out as gay, transgender, any but any any aspect of the LGBT spectrum of sexuality and, and, and identity. That should be the. That should be the reaction. Oh, you're that thing now. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, what's for dinner? You know, it should be like. Okay. Yeah. I love you, and I'll always love you, no matter who you who you are, what you identify as, what who you love. That I love you for you. That should be the main deal. And and here the flip side is you have to fight for that acceptance. You have to prove that you have to, the idea that you have to prove that you are deserving of loving love and acceptance is out all over like that's the thing. Love Simon is the ideal. Uh, Boy Erased is the struggle. It is the very real struggle that a lot of LGBT uh, youth have to overcome. And even the movie acknowledges that not everybody overcomes it. Some people very, very much so cannot succumb to a lot of the abuse that is that is hurled at them by people who supposedly love them. I love you, so I'm going to horribly abuse you because God told me. God said so. God said it this way, or... Well, my pastor said it this way, and my pastor said that God said that you, that you're bad, so I'm going to abuse you until you're good. I don't think you wouldn't do that to a dog. Who who would do that to like a dog? Oh, you peed on the rug. That's bad. I'm going to beat you until you stop peeing on the rug. Like I know that's a thing that people do, but how is a like it, we're in the 21st century? It should be very clear that abuse is not a viable means of education and 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 learning and helping to helping to you know overcome bad behaviors. Like even if this was true, even if it was true that it's a behavioral thing that you have to overcome, you do not overcome it by abuse. Abuse never helps you overcome a bad behavioral pattern. So even on that, even in the aspect of pure psychology and behavioral psychology, it doesn't understand how to overcome bad behavioral patterns. So yeah, gay conversion therapy—it's BS. It should be a it should, it should be a there should be a national ban. Pro, there are probably better countries in the world that do have a national ban on it. We just have to we just have to fight for it every step of the way. And I know this week I'm going to start my fight to because I know for a fact that I you know my I have friends. And loved ones within this community, and I, and the fact that they and and the, and the member and the other members of this community of that community within my city, within my within my county, within my state, are being are being are legally allowed to be abused like that is unacceptable. And if, if you're listening to this wherever you are, um, I used what was it? Uh, I think it was LGBTQ, LGBTQNation.org. Uh, let me get the let me get the lgbtmap.org and it covers all of the uh, advances in gay, gay lgbt rights uh, across the country state to state uh, city to city and you can learn your like that's for mainly for america i don't know if there's similar things for international uh, listeners but 
look up the equality map. Just look up LGBT equality map and see what your state and uh, local and you know and what your local and your national uh, laws are in order to not only protect against discrimination but also um, to to ban things like gay conversion therapy and things that are very harmful to uh, to the LGBT LGBTQ members uh, in your community. So yeah, I'm def- I'm definitely going to be looking. In fact, I'm going to make myself a note uh, sometime tomorrow or sometime this week to make to make con- try to make contact with my local representative to see if there's a way to you know institute a ban on gay conversion therapy and institute protect you know more protections for our local LGBT member LGBT members uh, and you know citizens. So yeah. It's kind of a kind of a downer review, but ends on a ends on a note of a you know go out there and fight, fight, fight for the protection of your loved one, for the loved ones around you. This is the thing. I'm not a member of this community, but I know for a fact that these people that the the that every member of that community deserves the same protection against discrimination and against abuse that any member that any member of any other minority community deserves, and the fact that. And the fact that they have to, you know, continually claw and scratch just to get basic, tr- basic decency and and rights and tr- and and proper treatment under the law is always seeing that for any minority group is always just abysmal. So, yeah, fight fight for their rights. They they don't have to be your rights, but make sure that the that that peop, these that the members of these uh, down that the members of the minorities community are protected. That's, that's your right as a citizen of whatever country you're in. Period. End of story. So yeah, on that call to action, uh, we're gonna end. We're gonna end the review portion here, and we're already over long. Oof, oof. We're already over two hours, man. This has been a super mega awesome one for the ages. Uh, so yeah, let's let's uh, take a look at the week that was in this week's box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. I'll bring it up at the end of the episode too, but at, normally after the uh, review portion is where I would do a Patreon section where patrons can either ha- suggest reviews for me to do, uh, I can do fee commentary and feedback from people. All of that can be done as long as you send that, and I'll tell you how at the end of the episode. But you know, if you want to see have your own um, interactions with me and having your own um, uh, your your own input into the show, we can do that after the review portion of every episode. But you know, there are you know, I'll tell you how uh, at, at, during the plug section. So if we as we look to the week that was, we take a look at the. New, the box office for the for the Thanksgiving Day weekend for the Thanksgiving weekend. Um, for some reason it only lists Friday through Sunday. It doesn't have the full weekend chart. For, that's weird. Uh, but for this, but for this weekend, um, uh, dropping out of the top uh, seven, we've got Nutcracker in the Four Realms dropping down to number eleven. A Star Is Born finally drops down to number ten. And we do see a rise. Green Book jumps up from number 22 to number 9 as it gets an increase in theaters. And then Widows drops out of the top 7 and down to number 8. And we start off the top 7 with uh, our first new release, uh, wide release, and that's Summit's Robin Hood, which opened to 
nine million dollars, nine point one million dollars, and had a li- had about uh, and overall its domestic uh, full Thanksgiving Day weekend gross brought it up to fourteen point two million dollars, combined with a f- uh, with the foreign markets to include to bring up the. Worldwide grows to $22.9 million its opening weekend. And that's a Thanksgiving Day weekend. So let's take a look at that budget because uh, the box office mojo doesn't list it. Uh, 90 to $100 million. Yes. Lovely. Beautiful. Love it. Love it. Also, Tim Minchin is in this movie as Friar Tuck. And he's fine, but man... F. Murray Abraham was the cardinal. It's it really is the pits. It's just such a bad movie. And yeah, people are wisely waiting to see it on like DVD or FX or something because they have no reason to see this tripe in theaters. Uh, moving ahead, dropping down from number four to number six is Instant Family, which brought in twelve point five million dollars uh, during the week during the weekend. Um, uh, its total gross up to date is $35.7 million, which is just under its $48 million budget. So it's not really doing too hot, but I'm sure it'll make back. I'm sure it'll make at least its budget back by the end of its run. Uh, but I think it's already on its way out. So I, I, I can't imagine more people are going to come back and see it after that initial screening. Uh, Meanwhile, dropping down from number three to number five is a movie that already made its money, Bohemian Rhapsody, bringing in $13.8 million this weekend, bringing its domestic total up to $152 million, and its worldwide total up to $472 million. Yeah, this movie's doing just fine. It made back... People love their Queen. It's not, a, it's not the best movie, but Queen, you know, Queen will always get people pumped. Uh, dropping down from number one to number five. Four. Not the biggest, I don't think that's the biggest number one uh, drop-off I've seen, but dropping down well below its competitor from last weekend is Fantastic Beasts to uh, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which brought in uh, this weekend $29.6 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $117 million and its worldwide gross up to $439 million. Harry Potter franchise is doing just fine. And if we look at the uh, look at who's doing the big numbers, China is the big proponent for this, as well as the UK with 15 million, Germany and France, uh, Russia and South Korea. But the big proponent of all of this is China. China is carrying a big chunk of this of this movie, of this movie's uh, foreign gross. And yeah, people no matter it doesn't matter if the movie's good or not, people still love them some Harry Potter. So we're definitely going to see this see this storyline continue. Hopefully, the storytelling improves. Uh, meanwhile, keeping up <laughs> keeping up ahead of its competition is Doctor Seuss's The Grinch, dropping down from number two to number three. Brought in thirty point two million dollars this weekend as we head into the Christmas season, uh, well, the holiday season specifically. We people are probably seeing this for Thanksgiving, and they're going to get ready to see so, see it more and more as we head into the holiday season proper. And its domestic gross is brought up to one hundred eighty point four million dollars. And it's worldwide gross after, what, three weeks, I think? Uh, yeah, three weeks is $215.7 million, which, is, which makes it a, a, a riling, uh, rowdy, riling, uh, something, whatever success for Illumination, uh, more than doubling its budget. 
So yeah, the Grinch is doing just fine. He ain't feeling Grinchy over those over that Rio Green. Uh, yeah. Anyway, premiere number two this weekend is Creed Two, which brought in thirty five point two million dollars uh, and a total Thanksgiving Day gross Thanksgiving Day weekend gross of fifty five point eight million dollars domestically, and that one also does not have its budget on Box Office Mojo. So we head over to. Wikipedia, its budget is $50 million. So already made back its budget opening weekend. So if it can double that over the course of its run, it'll be a success. So and I, I have this feeling that people are going to go back and see this one again. Uh, I would be surprised if this just quickly dropped off after its first weekend. So yeah, people love them. Uh, people love them, the Rocky franchise. And I really hope they love this one as much as I do. And then premiering at number one, surprising not really anybody, is Ralph Breaks the Internet, which premiered uh, $55 million over the weekend proper. And with the added Thanksgiving Day bump, it made $84.4 million domestically its opening weekend. And combined with the foreign markets, made a total of $125.9 million its opening weekend. And I'm guessing it's probably not too much more than that to make 175 million so yeah it probably i'm guessing unless it has a steep drop off it'll ease it can make back its money but yeah it dominated the thanksgiving day weekend and mainly because it's the family movie of the weekend it's the one that people are going to go see you know take the kids to now that they have thanksgiving day weekend off so i'm not a big fan of it but uh it's clear that the that between the marketing and the you, the Disney saturation and the appealing to families and kids, it made back its money, no problem. And, and, it, and I'm sure it'll make, it'll definitely make back its budget. We'll see how it does in terms of it, of um, the series, of comparing to the rest of Disney and whatnot. Uh, compare, it already opened what, uh, to a bigger number than um, its predecessor. Wreck-It Ralph only opened to $49 million. So, this already opened higher than it's than it, than the previous entry, but we'll see how it does overall as we head into the as we head into the December and the end of the year and the big holiday push. All right, that was this weekend's box office report. So now that we saw the week that was, we look forward to the week ahead in trailer talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Read it all. Starts Friday. Now, this upcoming weekend is a bit fuzzy. Like, unlike Thanksgiving, which is a tentpole release date, here we have a very, very gray sort of whether or not movies will be released this weekend or not. I'm seeing yes for some. I'm seeing no for others. I'm not quite sure what all are going to be the big releases. The number says there's only one. IMDb says there's a couple. It's hard to say what all is going to be a limited release, what's going to be a wide release. Uh, I'll have to wait and see uh, when the when the announcements are going to be like on Tuesday, Tuesday slash, um, uh, sorry, hiccups, uh, Tuesday or uh, Wednesday, what the what the Thursday releases are going to be, but from what I can gather, we got about I can find about three possible new releases. First up is one that I've been looking forward to, and that's the adaptation of I believe James Baldwin's uh, novel If Beale Street Could Talk. 
Uh, I'll be corrected in the trailer if not if that wasn't him. So let's take a look at the trailer for If Beale Street Could Talk. You ready for this? I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. From Barry Jenkins, no. director of Moonlight. No matter what happens. Yep, Academy Award ring filmmaker of Moonlight. Yep, based on the acclaimed novel by James Baldwin. Who does she remind me of? I hope it's a boy. <laughs> Come on over here, daughter. You're a good girl, and I'm proud of you. Don't you ever forget it. And who's gonna be Tiona Paris, it seems to be the main uh, actress in this. She kind of reminds me of, like, Lupita Nyong'o a bit. Um, that child was born. A bit of... Yeah, I think specifically Lupita. She kind of reminds me of Regina King. We've gotten here. Difference doesn't make how it gets here. Unbow your head, sister. In 2019. Wait. Wait. So they're not releasing this until like January, February. Oh boy. He's about to pay for something he didn't do. These are our children, and we gotta set them free. So yeah, this may be a limited release. I'll see if it's playing near me. so much I heard good things about the I, I think James Baldwin came up in one of my uh, no it came up in the preview when I talked about this movie um, but yeah he's, he's, he's a he's a very uh, powerful uh, uh, black black author and and seeing hit one of his you know very very highly acclaimed uh, novels being adapted in the in, in a year that saw such great adaptations of uh, black stories and of, and of course seeing just great black cinema this whole year to to have it end on on an adaptation of a James Baldwin novel was a nice touch. Uh, we'll see if I get the chance to see it. I may not, um, but I hope I do because I really like the trailer for this. And I know Barry Jenkins is a is a phenomenal director, so I hope I get the chance to see this. Uh, Next up, one that's been getting some buzz uh, in the indie scene and may get a wider release this weekend in the, in the lead up to the holidays. It's the mu Christmas musical extravaganza that is Anna and the Apocalypse. Orion is bankrupt now. Only thing I'll ever. The only thing I'll ever think about when I see the Orion uh, logo. Shaun of the Dead meets La La Land. A zombie Christmas musical. Totally bonkers. Oh no. What? 
was a zombie. This year's feel good Christmas hit. Extraordinarily entertaining. An absolute and utter blast. I love it. I don't know if it's this weekend, but it's definitely going to be coming out for uh, the holidays. And I feel like this is going to be this year's sort of Krampus-style, like, darker Christmas movie. And I am here for this. These are the things we should be doing with cinema. Yo, take chances. Make mistakes. Get messy. Ah, I can't wait. And then the big release, the one that was on the numbers, uh, the one that seems to be the most prominent and possible new release this weekend... A Position movie. Feels a little late for Halloween, but anyway. The Position of Hannah Grace. Let's take a look at the trailer. Sony. Oh, fun. This job is not for everyone. Because of the hours? Because the only co-workers are cadavers. Mm. I heard there were issues. Yes, there were issues. But I'm much better now. Welcome to the team. Uh, You're the new girl. Megan. Well, I got a weird one for you. Her name is Hannah Grace. And her family was performing an exorcism or something on her. Something went wrong. And she died in the middle of it. The effects design. Oh, the, stu- the studio that brought you Don't Breathe. If an exorcism isn't completed, evil will find a new vessel. Yeah, I bet. I believe when you die, you die. End of story. Then you're up for it? Who's this girl? I can handle Have we seen her in something before? On November 30th. Ah oh, man. Imagine being the actress cast to be like, oh, by the way, you're gonna be a zombie possessed cadaver running around the hospital naked. Hope you you know, have fun with that. Death is only the beginning. The beginning. Called it! I freaking called it! Shay Mitchell. End of story. Name doesn't sound familiar. Oh no, somebody's running the hand dryer. Good thing she's on the toilet. The possession of Hannah Grace. Oh, and she ends up in the in the cadaver locker at some point. Yep. Thanks, thanks for that movie. Sony Pictures. You just you, you just can't, can you? You just always gotta mess things up. Uh uh, but I'm guessing more people are going to be fine with it than I will. Um, this is definitely not my scene. But people, some people just love these really trashy horror movies. It feels really, wait, really late for this, though. It feels like this should have been a Halloween release. But for some reason, they didn't want to... What did, did Sony have something else this Halloween? What do they have? Um, 
Sony Pictures, let's take a look at October. Sony had the Happy Prince, uh, which was their um, in this is their art, their sort of independent art art house uh, Oscar push for um, Rupert Everett. He was um, that's Sony Pictures classics. That's his uh, um, Oscar Wilde biopic. Sony Pictures Animation had Goosebumps two. That's their kids division. Bleecker Street, IFC, Summit, Amazon Studios. Yeah, Halloween weekend. They could have put this in there. They had, all they had to compete with was Johnny English Strikes Again, Hunter Killer, and Indivisible. Suspiria wasn't even in wide release that weekend. What, what was what? They, they didn't want to compete with freaking Halloween the remake. I mean, they can, there's enough. There are enough people looking for horror Halloween weekend this year. Why push it until? Did they meant to say October thirtieth, and they ended up making a mistake and putting November? Like, why put this at the end of, at, after Thanksgiving? I don't get it. Uh, well, we'll see. Uh, maybe so people because they knew it was going to be trash, and they figured people will forget it if they put it after after Thanksgiving instead of Halloween. Uh, we'll see. That, that's what the, that's what we have looked forward to this weekend. So instead of that, I'm also going to look and see about Netflix. I'm going to try and finish. Um, the uh, Gauntlet season two of the MST3K um, uh, uh, for Netflix. Uh, I'm going to see if I, I'm going to try to check out Outlocking at some point as well. And then uh, apparently Andy Serkis's uh, Jungle Book movie got bought out by Netflix and couldn't make it to theaters. So I'm gonna, that's supposed to be premiering this weekend. I might look into that. So there may be more Netflix and talk, Netflix and chat this week, next episode, than wide releases, but we'll see. That, but I've kept you long enough. This episode is way too long anyway. So let's let's uh let's get into now the big stuff is over. It is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by whitelisting us on your ad blocker and and um favoriting us and being and checking us every day we've got all new stuff coming out all the time we've got donna's stuff over at, Snar- at snarkcasts uh we've got um the, there's going to be a new uh living in the stacks episode plus some major announcement on that one as well so stay tuned to that for t- uh tomorrow as of this as of this release and then, you know, be, check out all of our other fine programming. And if you yourself are a podcaster and would like to join our network, feel free to contact us uh, at gmail at gmail.com. And we'll get back to you and see if you, we, you can join our happy little family. And otherwise, if you're listening to us on your mobile devices, you can do so through the various podcast providers. We're at uh, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Spreaker. That means we're on iHeartRadio, Stitcher. Uh, I'm trying to add... Uh, add the show to Podbean to make that a Patreon, a patron accessible uh, feed as well. But uh, that one's going to cost a little bit of money, which I don't have at the moment. We'll see about that down the line. But for as as of right now, we have various other outlets for you to listen to the podcast. And as long as you're seeing my orange mug chomping on popcorn, staring at the movie, you're you'll be you should be fine. And don't forget to. Uh, give it five star rating and review to let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. Uh, you can also share the show on your various social media outlets. Uh, our Facebook home is facebook.com slash popcorn junkie. We're also on Twitter at corn junkie pod on Instagram at popcorn junkie podcast and on stardust at popcorn junkie. And, uh, you know, be sure to follow us there. Uh, 
check out our con check out all the content. You can get previews of uh, everything I'm reviewing on uh, on on the next episode through Stardust. And I'm doing a lot more stuff there every day. I'm doing some trailer talk stuff as well. So if you want to see my reactions to stuff, go check out Stardust. Check out, download the Stardust app and follow me at Popcorn Junkie. And check out all the cool people there as well. We're having a lot of fun on Stardust. You should join us. And then if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, rebuttals you want to give to my opinions, any kind of um, uh, addendums, anything you wanted to add to what I said, uh, any kind of corrections, feel free to correct me if I misspoke. I have no problem uh, uh, correcting myself. Uh, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to have it, have your e- email read on the show, let me know in the in the in the what in the wording of the of your email that you give me uh, explicit permission permission to share your email on the show. Otherwise, I'll only paraphrase. I don't want to use your, your, I don't want to read out your email unless you give me permission to. And of course, um, if you want to have your own, you know, help, help out the show yourself, you can do so by donating a dollar or more every month to patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. And there you'll get access to the, to the feed of all, of all 10 episodes each of Munch Along and Make a Better Movie. And you can check it out yourself. And you can check out how I'd make better movies of various other things from decent movies, from, from good movies that could use some tweaking to make better to bad movies that you, you have to completely overhaul and fix. And then you hear, hear me do a uh, sort of off the cuff riff track style commentary on various movies from Bambi to uh, Jaws. I believe no, was it Jaws? It was, was it, yeah, it was. No, it was I don't think I did Jaws that week. I think it was something else. No, I, I did make a better movie for Jaws 3D. I think, but yeah, various various um, commentary tracks. If you wanted to check those out, that's all at Patreon.com/slash/PopcornJunkie. And if you want to make suggestions for future page for future Patreon exclusive content as well as stuff for the podcast. Be sure to sign up to sign up to support the show on Patreon, and you can do so there. And we can even get you started on suggesting content for not only the main show but Patreon exclusive content. Once we reach our first goal of ten, just ten dollars a month. And if we can reach that goal, then we can start adding adding uh, user listener uh, suggested content onto this show. If you're listening to this show. You know, I'm not asking you to donate a lot, but at least sending in feedback to let me know that you're listening and that I've made a mistake and I should correct it. Or if you have a differing of difference of opinion and you want to and you want to talk about it, or if you or if you saw the movie yourself and you wanted to add to something I said, if I missed something, uh, we can talk about it there. I would love to include an audience feedback segment and. Uh, and, it, and I feel like that interaction is what re- what really drives me to uh, help cr- to make content for the internet. Really, just that connect that you know that it, you know this should not be a one way thing. Ultimately, I would I love the idea of you're also joining in the conversation. Uh, but anyway, that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and yes, I will get the new Pokemon movie next week as well. It's, a, it's I should be able to see it. Uh, Monday or Wednesday, whenever I get the chance. But the the new Pokemon movie will be reviewed this year as well. Don't worry, all none of you who are concerned about that.
Theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nathio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nathio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. By hi, Kitty. Uh, damn it! I'm trying to be serious, and a damn cat comes barging in, wanting attention. What do you want? What do you want? You trouble? Uh, governmental, like state, states. Uh, I'm real. This is why I'm not in politics. I'm a terrible speaker off the cuff. <laughs>